Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how has Idris Elba's hijack been treating you on Apple TV Plus? Fine, until he tried to send a secret message by annotating a soft drink, <laughs> which I can't remember who it was who was saying on Twitter that, why didn't he just whisper stuff? <laughs> it is a very strange show about Idris Elba being on a hijacked plane where the kind of rules of how you can behave on the plane seem to change minute to minute. Sometimes he's like running around all over the place and sometimes it's so locked down that you have to send the aforementioned coconut water <laughs> memo back to back to a second class. <laughs> yeah, every now and then I kind of like, I'm reminded, just watching bits of it, that this should just be a film. Like many TV shows now, it should just be a one 100-minute film released in like 2006, but now it has to be like the seven hour long episodes and it's just uh you really feel the pinch of it with some shows and that feels like one of them do you think that's fair yeah i think so i can sort of see why they padded it out you know to give character arcs to like everyone involved but you're really only interested in indris elba and the hijacker the main hijacker yeah i mean i quite like a plain hijack story i quite like people running around in those space as people will learn if they listen to our xl episode on best levels <laughs> some plain chat in that that's it if you want to hear matthew's thoughts on all levels and games based in air force one then that <laughs> is the pod that you want patreon.com slash back page pod four pound fifty xl tier great ad there matthew not planned of course i just went to london with our pal jay bayless actually mm. and i went to one of those nq64 sort of pubs well i say pub it's kind of like a weird hybrid between i don't know what that means <laughs> it's like a gaming bar right right but so it's got like loads of arcade machines, but also a few games consoles set up. So basically emulation devices. You can click to go back to like a main menu and then just pick a, a ROM from a bunch of different ROMs. And I saw a couple who were definitely born after the year 2000, just like trying to understand original GTA in that bar. And <laughs> you could just see them like driving one taxi very slowly into a building, not understanding how the top down element of it works at all then walking away in total defeat that was my highlight of that oh, day they didn't even run over the monks <laughs> <laughs> no exactly i don't think they even got steering down and i was like yeah <laughs> of all the games to go back to from that time top down gta has got to be like up there as one of the toughest you know so uh <laughs> yeah but do you know what i actually i did play for the first time i never played this before i played super super puzzle fighter 2 turbo so all right we did verses and that, because you've heard of that before, right? Like Street yeah, Fighter themed yeah. puzzle game. And it kind of is like a version of, you know, um, Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine, basically, but like competitive with like little chibi Street Fighter sprites and Darkstalker sprites fighting each other on screen. That game is fucking amazing. And I'd always heard people talk about how good it was, but it's only sat there playing it on this deeply illegal PS1 that... <laughs> You know, 1v1 in person, I just realized how good it was. But the, the problem is, I was really good at playing the short game, like racking up like quick combos of little little ball things and then sending like um, some trouble Jay's way. But then he, because he has like game developer brain, he could think five steps ahead and then I, my screen would be empty, just have like two little balls and then suddenly be full. And that's like the difference between us, really. It's like my very average 
intelligence versus like game developer super brain yeah i don't know if you can still i don't think you can still get that on any modern formats now i think it's kind of like uh maybe there was an xbla version yeah, at some it was point definitely an xbla version because there was a little flash where everyone was suddenly interested in it again yeah yeah but i feel like a, it should be perpetually available on steam and it's just so it's so so good and uh yeah, but it was there were a couple of like um, blokey blokes behind us watching us play this puzzle game, and I thought this is a bit of a weird kind of like collision of worlds. I feel like we were never supposed to cross paths with these people. They were never supposed to watch us play Super Puzzle Fighter, and we were never supposed now to doing be on. a podcast and talking about you like you were talking about the GTA people. <laughs> well, the thing is, the vibe of the place is a bit strange because. You get those kind of like laddie kind of guys who I obviously have no time for, you know, naturally. And um, <laughs> you get that mixed with like a lot of very young people who definitely would have like never seen the arcade scene in any kind of like good state because they were born after, I don't know, 1997 or whatever. Right. And then you also get like dudes who bring their girls there on dates. And there's a lot of like sort of young couples getting off in corners of it. Very strange clientele. Ooh. And then the occasional sort of stag or hen do of people in their like late 30s and early 40s kind of thing. So I don't think my brain could comprehend, like in my left eye, seeing <laughs> two dudes playing Super Puzzle Fighter and in my right eye seeing snogging. Yeah. But I'd yeah. be like, I've, I've somehow slipped into two worlds. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> I took a, And also there are no windows. I took a lot of psychic damage from being there, just to be honest. Oh, um, it sounds, I'm not going to lie, it sounds awful. <laughs> It does have a kind of like fluorescent paint aesthetic as well, just like lots of shiny sort of like. It looks like you've got an ultraviolet light on sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know. It's like the 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 game setup is really really good. Like it's it is cool. They got like PS One, you know, GameCube, so Smash, America, obviously very popular. They have a Mega Drive there. Um, people just confusingly playing like Sonic 2's one v one mode. That's quite strange to see. Um, and yeah, it was it was like a good a good mix of stuff there. But um, yeah, it did feel a bit like I don't know exactly who this is designed for. Theoretically, me because it has loads of like cocktails that are um, themed around games. And any examples? So, oh gosh, I wish I written down the oh, menu now. Yeah, I said about it. it was like there was like, gold. There was like a, a final Fanta something or other. Oh, okay. and like with the yeah that it was that level of part. I mean, you We're know you're in like, a classy place when they're making cocktails out of Czech's notes Fanta. <laughs> I think that's right. NQ64 cocktail menu. I'm determined to get this now. Let's see. Drinks. What have you got for me? Hey, here we go. I was actually, it was Final Fantarita. Uh, we've got Quick Revive number five. I don't really get what that's a reference to. Um, Bulba Sour. That sounds like it's, it'll be terrible. No co- no alcohol in that one. Right. Weirdly, there's an ET themed one. I don't get that. Um, <laughs> well, I guess there is that notoriously bad ET game that they buried in the desert. Yeah, there is. There's I a name bit, a drink but... after something that's like famously shit. Yeah, there's one that's just called Kirby, and there's no there's no pun. That's confusing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got beefy to pink gin in it, which kind of makes sense. Right, but okay. the worst one, right? And you will you will love how terrible this is. Doctor Robevnik. <laughs> <laughs> that's got Jack Daniels and cherry bourbon blend in it that sounds like and dr pepper syrup that sounds like it'd be fucking terrible to be honest listen we've got a mailbag coming up someone ask us to come up with video game cocktails for mailbag and we'll do it yeah we will come up with better puns than that yeah it's weird though because it felt like it actually was it was actually fine it was like the least threatening pub you could basically go to because there was just a fundamental understanding that the core audience are basically dweebs whether those Mm. dweebs happen to be you know, me and Jay Bayless playing Puzzle Fighter or like a dude and his girlfriend getting off in the corner. Um, 
a lot of people who just haven't seen sunlight for a while kind of like that sort of vibe so uh yeah it was good so that's what i've been up to matthew but while you were spending time with real friends uh, i've been playing a bit of Videoverse, lucy's absolutely brilliant new game um lucy came on talked about uh visual novels on the pod mm. and she released this game which she talked about there which is sort of set in a kind of fictional console uh kind of a like a version of meverse and it's all about like online communities and i got i yesterday uh, it just tickled me the idea of you being with all these real people while i was getting quite kind of involved with these fictional friends and like oh they've messaged me yes i'll message them back <laughs> but uh i'm having a great time with that looking forward to to talking about that at a later point once i've played a bit more yeah yeah i've, I've bought i bought that too i heard a rumor that we're we're got a special thanks in the credits matthew i don't yeah. know if that's true or not but that's quite nice there you um, go we're going up in the world <laughs> jay says he put a special thanks for us in the in like an original version of the credits and then we got cut out of it metroid dread style like we just weren't, <laughs> weren't part of the finished cut <laughs> no, I was, I was like, you don't have to put me in there. We didn't do anything. Just you came on a podcast. We got some good content out of it too. You know, we all won in that equation. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm looking forward to playing video first. I'm guessing that's a good fit for the Steam Deck as well. Like it's mouse controlled, so I don't know what I don't know what the the, the button controls are like. Okay, yeah, I suppose like we got the trackpads right. So uh, I'll give yeah. that some thought then. Mm. Okay, good. This podcast then, lots to talk about. Best games of 2016. The, these are kind of our flagship podcasts, even though I acknowledge, fully acknowledge that we do them a lot slower than we used to. I think that's partly because we got through all of the years where the, there was probably the content that would be of most interest to people, or at least it feels that way to me and you, Matthew. Is that is that fair? Because we did, we started with 2006, so we've worked our way forwards, and we've gone through all of our quote-unquote glory years of working games <laughs> media. And then in the last couple of years, it's, it's entered a bit more of a bleak, sort of end times period uh, so is there is there still are there still rays of hope in these podcasts ahead Matthew or do you think this whole format is a bit doomed by like what happened in the real world in you know real time I, I would say like if if you haven't felt that bleakness up until now like 2016 is like definitely someone makes a really bad decision in a video game and starts heading towards the bad ending um <laughs> And we're kind of very much on that track. The games are still good. Some fun stuff happens. Like, I laughed a lot this year uh, thinking about some of the silly things that happened to me at different times. I think there's there's still some rays of hope. The, the tricky thing with these episodes is that as we do more and more of the podcast, we've covered like more and more of these games. And I look down my top 10, and it's like, I feel like I've talked in detail about like maybe eight of these games already. Yeah. And so you don't want to sound like a broken record and it's harder to sort of surprise people. And I don't know if you found this, but I found myself going, well, shall I like put this in the top 10 just so I've got something else to talk about? But I also mm. wanted to be honest what I actually felt. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I had a little bit of that where I was like, well, how am I going to talk about unnamed Naughty Dog game from this year, for example, without repeating myself massively? Right. Or... Or, you know, um, unnamed first entry in a trio of Hitman-related, uh, you know, sort of like activities <laughs> game. Right. Like that that sort of thing. So, yeah, I have talked about most of these before. Not all of them. There's a couple of, like two to three exceptions, like you say. But, yeah, there's a bit of like sort of territory we've we've covered a bit. Some stuff I think we haven't talked about, though, since um, we did the Best Games of the Generation episode, okay. during which a lot of these games did appear um and they were like that was like the first time we talked about them and that was so long ago now that's like almost three years ago we did those right, episodes well. so yeah so i don't know I, I think people will still enjoy it who knows it might be a bit of a you know a sort of remix of existing content but 
it's a strong year for sure like it's it's interesting i think actually because i think this year games wise is sort of defined by games that were uh, some games that were a massive deal and just didn't sell very well but were like excellent there's like actually about like maybe three to four of those on my list where i was like these games were not considered a massive success that's a bit of a contrast to 2015 where i feel like all the games that were really important also sold very well this year it's a bit more up and down where it's like the the what i would say is the standout game of the year didn't sell to expectations which is right was a bit of a crime i don't know if you had any broader observations about the the year in games it's a very good year for a genre which i'm not very invested in online shooters right <laughs> maybe they won't be properly represented like actually looking down the list i was like this is it i wouldn't i don't know if it's quite an all-time year but it's it's a pretty amazing year. My specific tastes were like well catered for, but I, I think you could have other people make a separate top 10 list and have no crossover at all. I'm sure neither of us have picked Overwatch, right? Right, yeah. And that is like, you know, probably the big deal from this year, isn't it? So uh, in terms of, you know, a, a new type of competitive shooter that absolutely exploded and, you know, definitely led to the creation of more uh, more like it in terms of hero-driven uh, shooters and other games, kind of like taking that MOBA approach to character design and then, you know, but then making the game super accessible and people were really buzzing for it. I remember just what a huge deal Overwatch was, but pass me by. You also got Dark Souls 3, which was the first of the HD era um from uh well sorry um well specifically dark souls games mm. so that was also a massive deal because that was also a, like obviously a miyazaki directed one I, I understand that dark souls 2 is slightly contentious game or like you know people have sort of uh, different takes on it it's not necessarily considered outright one of the best whereas three i think three i believe is so those games will not be represented in our podcast yeah, or I, any I others can, matthew i can remember on the mag telling tom stone our staff writer um like hey tom have you played any dark souls and he was like no no i was like well um you'll be reviewing dark souls 3 in like <laughs> two months so um you know best best get yourself learned <laughs> <laughs> the, um, a little insight to the matthew castle management style there just like yeah i'm gonna make this sound like free will and then you will later learn it is not free will that kind of situation <laughs> um yeah though. very good we, we, we just we, we made him become a dark souls guy and it worked these are the you know the fires in which staff writers are forged it's just the reality yeah. of it isn't it there's uh sometimes you just got a bluff that's what's going to happen yeah good for tom okay so i suppose uh, matthew i don't think there's anything necessarily more to say about the shape of the year yeah. because i think we're going to get to a lot of it when we when we go through the three stuff in this preamble and then obviously when we get to our list so how was your 2016 personally matthew this is the year i left print media and went to work for xbox on i was trying to think back to like what specifically happened because you know i was working on xm i'd been the editor of it for like a year and a bit obviously i'd inherited that mag from john hicks and the london team when they closed the london offices so that was always a little bit of a didn't sort of see it coming you know i, I you know I, I, I didn't set out to be an to be an xbox magazine person uh and then uh rich keith who was used to be one of the publishers of future and had gone over a sort of managerial role to the Yogscast, which was obviously the the popular youtube out, outfit and he approached me saying we're we're gonna get this contract to make the official youtube channel for xbox uk we're looking for like an editorial brain to head it up um, I imagine he came to me simply because I was on official Xbox magazine. I don't think I was particularly known to Rich, necessarily. Like, I never really worked with him. There were maybe other, pe- other people who may have been even hungrier for such a thing had he approached them, but he approached me. 
my natural instinct was to say no because I'm a print guy, not a video guy. It just feels doesn't feel like a natural fit. And then, and this is going to sound this is going to sound quite overblown, and I'm, I hope it doesn't sound hand wringing. Basically, when the EU referendum happened this year kind of rewired my brain a bit because I realised that my fate was in the hands of a load of fucking idiots and it didn't really matter how many sensible decisions I made outside forces could come and like wreck my life if they wanted right so I thought fuck it I'll just sort of throw caution to the wind which I would never have done I genuinely don't think I would have done this move if if that hadn't have happened wow I didn't know that I didn't know that that was part of the thinking it was just a big shift. You were like, well, it doesn't matter what your personal plans are. Like, these things can happen. When I say Brexit wrecked my life, and that's obviously a preposterous thing to say, but more like I was so disillusioned with just like the state of the nation and the state of the world that I thought, you know, I've really got like nothing to lose and I can I can make these decisions, which are actually like, I don't know if, if that's a smart way to do things. I still don't know if in the end if I made the right move. I mean, obviously it's like define my life since then and i'm now a video person i do wonder should i've like held out and tried to go online should i've tried to stick in traditional games journalism rather than going into basically client consumer facing marketing which was what xbox on was so that's like a huge you know to go from like end gamer to that is quite a violent shift <laughs> yeah i think like actually when i think about why i left games media it's because i sort of found I found that like I had gotten so far from what the original job was at times when I was writing like deals posts and stuff for Black Friday that I was like, this isn't actually close to what I got into doing this for. Right. And so I might as well do something else. And yeah. yeah and also, I, but the thing is though, I think you did make the right call because you doubled your skill set. You went from being someone who could just make print magazines to someone who could make online videos. And that is a far more valuable skill set to have in the modern world you know yeah let's face it, that's just true that that is true though i wasn't taught it at all like I, I just had to like guess at it and learn it and this isn't me saying it wasn't like properly supported by the Oxcast, but like you know that was a network of youtube creators of self-made mostly young people who'd exploded on youtube which is a very different world to you're trying to make this editorial channel for xbox you know who you know because you had like playstation access was obviously exploding which is the playstation equivalent and xbox just wanted a bit of that they'd already been doing the channel for a couple of years with another company the the first few months i won't lie were like incredibly hard about the worst i've ever felt about like myself and work because i was just having a constant panic attack i had always people looking to me and it's like i genuinely don't know how to do this like i don't know what works i don't know anything about youtube like i don't really consume it i wasn't interested in video it really was a very ill thought out decision and in in the office we had like hosts who were they were contracted but they they weren't in the bristol offices at yogscast so in the office it was me and our video editor adrian and often we'd be just out in the car park because Adrian was a smoker, so he was always out there having cigarette breaks. And I was always out there just having a fucking meltdown to him while he'd sort of sit there sort of observing me and, you know, coolly through for a cigarette smoke <laughs> and thinking, wow. like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, what have I done? It was just really full on and quite scary. Yeah, I think um, I remember being bummed that when you left because I was like, well, you know, Matthew was really 
fun to work with was it like towards the end of the 2016 that you moved on yeah i think it's about october like the, the first big game we covered on the channel the first big beat that we had to hit was like gears 4 mm. so around that time forza actually i think forza horizon 3 was the very first thing we covered so it's yeah. definitely after Gamescom because I, th- I think I knew I was leaving when I went to Gamescom. So I had this really great, like, I don't give a shit Gamescom, which is which is where we were sharing a room. And I think it was good fun because I didn't give a shit. Yeah. Um, I was, and I, I probably I gave you like a, a, a slightly wrong impression of how I usually am. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's sort of like a bit of that. Yeah. Obviously, this was the famous <laughs> Gamescom where your knee shattered. You fell over and smashed your knee. Um, yeah. The breaking of that knee was very much the forging of our friendship, I think. Like, it was, you know, the knee died so that the friendship may live. There was that kind of vibe to it. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing is that, yeah, so I remember that you were redesigning OXM. Did that launch this year, the redesign? Yeah, so we, re- and- yeah, we redesigned the mag. Obviously, when I did that, I had no inkling that this, this video shift was coming up. Even though I, I didn't feel like it was the most natural fit, me and OXM, you know, being able to take a bit of ownership of it and try and make it a better mag. It had a lot of the values that I think I fundamentally have. It was very much like a writer's magazine. There was a lot of space for people to kind of have interesting, you know, interesting opinions. Like we retooled news to be less reliant on the news and a bit more kind of opiniony and kind of gimmicky, which was fun. We had the famous barrel watch column in <laughs> which we re- in review interviewed, in which we reviewed barrels from various games and Tom Stone took that column on and like ran with it and created this like quite weird sort of backstory for the figure who was reviewing them, who was this sort of like barrel obsessive. These were like ten word captions, and just through five ten word captions a month, you began getting this weird image of what this barrel guy was all about, and he'd been to some kind of barrel university, and it just it it basically hinged on the word barrel being funny to us and being said a lot. Looking back on them this morning. You know, they they were pretty solid mags. They've got big... This mag hasn't got a big freelance budget energy because there's, like, a lot of me, Tom, and Alex Dale in it. Like, you just see our faces a lot in that magazine. Yeah, I was pretty pleased with the redesign. We had some team issues that I don't want to go into, which were a bit rough, which kind of took a lot of the fun out of that, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, you know, it was fun. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I remember when we redesigned it, we had a launch party for it. I remember thinking, like, a launch party? Like, no one gives a fuck. That's going to be weird. Like, why would, why would we be doing that? Like, this feels like it's going to be embarrassing. And listener, it was. <laughs> I think they did it to coincide with, like, REST. Because they were like, oh, the industry will be in London for REST. So let's, right. let's one evening, let's have, like, a drinks thing in this bar in London. They hired out the downstairs space for OXM. We, we made these quite nice invites and sent them out to all of our industry contacts. And they had boxes and boxes of the first issue. So we had all these magazines and we kind of put them all out on the tables downstairs in this bar. And so few people turned up for the launch party that the bar started reclaiming bits of the room for like (laughs) normal customers. Because it's like, well, there's no one here and you're not really like spending any money on on the drinks because there's no one here to, to have drinks. So members of the public would come down and just find these tables with loads of copies of OXM. And I could just see people like 
taking one look at it and then like just, you know basically tossing it in a nearby bin <laughs> or like just people grouping them all together and shoving them into a pile in the corner in front of your eyes you could just see like this will never be a thing anyone's interested in like yeah. this, is, this is truly over like this brilliant visual metaphor for like where print was at that time just a load of young Londoners who want to have a drink on Friday night throwing mags in the bin yeah 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 <laughs> wow that's wild yeah I, i'd redesigned the mag the year before 2015 was like my best year on pc gamer for sure the mag part and it was really good we redesigned it won the gma the mag was selling pretty well 2016 was just a bad year it was a bad year for like the real world reasons obviously there was us election and brexit at the same time and that was that moment was very much the solidifying of like half of mankind is out to get you basically so that was a tough year that was just like oh god oh dear god that was like what was going on in the real world on the magazine it was like i was really proud of the product we were making we had to launch an event this year like it was i think someone above me had like an objective to like launch a games event and it had to be a pc gamer event so we launched a pc gamer weekender in london did three of them and that required a massive energy and time investment from me alongside still making the magazine which I don't think is that uncommon in the in like how games events get made. Like I think that a lot of I think EGX is very dependent on its editorial staff for for elements of that. But I just personally felt like I didn't have the stamina for the event and the magazine and online and mm. the bits of online I was doing. I think I just get like a bit chewed up in the machinery of it this year. Mm. I was really proud of the event though. I thought it was pretty good, like for for what it was. So it was I don't know. It was like not a very fun year. It was. The only mag that was really thriving at this time was the official PlayStation magazine, and everyone else was just like yeah. trying to trying to stay afloat, and it was just not fun, <laughs> just not fun at all. Oh, it, oh, it, I remember being in like cover meetings and editors meetings or whatever, where PlayStation had a really mega selling issue this year with Spider Man on the cover right. because it had Spider Man. I can remember basic people saying like, "Yeah, what you guys need to do is to have like your Spider Man cover." And you're like, we don't have that, you know, like the game doesn't exist. You know, we only have the games we have. We might not have a Spider-Man. It was just so obvious that PlayStation 4 was like running away with the generation at that point. Yeah. We cannot compete as official Xbox magazine. I cannot make a Spider-Man happen on this machine. I had my minor revenge. Actually, I say minor revenge. This isn't revenge at all. <laughs> when we had our launch event, we had this standee made. Right. You know, one of those ones that you kind of pull up from the base. An advert for like the new look. LXM and I used to just come in early and put that up in official PlayStation's area all the time. I just like the idea of them coming in and having this obnoxious standee. Like that was my tiny rebellion was <laughs> to try and like wind up Matt Pellet with a big advert for LXM in his workspace. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny yeah it was just like i don't it just got the print media did just get less and less fun as it went no one knows what to do to make magazines sell or they would have done it and no one has and and loads of like big magazines have closed regardless of what they've done the idea of like anyone thinking they're some kind of cover guru being like i can diagnose your problem and give you suggestions mate you are just one more person guessing like i am and all we can do really is our best work and Mm. so there were some good bits too like we got Got a new deputy editor on the magazine, got Phil Savage, who was really, really good. He was sort of like, definitely like a, you know, a different sort of like vibe and 
we work really well together really easily together and we came up with our, one of our legendary um parodies of the division um back page kind of covers right. matthew for for this um this year so we did like um, basically a parody of tom clancy kind of like fiction the first one was pretty good the second one we did for the division two was excellent i think so definitely some good some good issues we had this year but yeah it was just tough man tough burned me out and i don't know i could definitely see the gray hairs popping in by the end of this year i was looking back at some photos and i looked i had definitely had some brown hair yet hair at the start of the year then it was gone by the end yeah uh, this was so this, yeah. this year was definitely the start of like weight gain for me because yogscast had like free drinks which future never had and they had a they they used to have a free cabinet of fentimans that stuff's just like pure sugar water, you know. And I remember developing a Fentiman's cherry cola habit at Yogg's. Also, they were just across the road from Five Guys, which at the time we didn't have one in Bath. So that seemed very exotic. I had loads of those. I learned quite late that Yogg's cast could get free Five Guys. Right. Um, just because wow. they were like famous. But obviously I wasn't like creator famous. It was really weird working there. I went in with a little bit of like, these people are the enemy because YouTubers were, like, replacing all forms of media. Right. And so you were, like, aware of, you know, these people make more in a year than I've made in my entire career, and I felt like I'd worked really, really hard to, to, for, for that quite lowly result. Right. And it was it was a bit of an eye-opener in terms of, like, how hard people did work or the art to it and the effort that went into it. And it, a lot of my kind of perceived notions were, were wrong. It was quite exciting working, even though I was on this quite corporate contract there, to be able to say, oh, I work at the Yogscast. Back then, it was still quite a big deal to people. I remember buying, like, this is the year I got engaged to Catherine. And I remember buying an engagement ring and talking to the lady in the shop. I said, oh, I work here at the Yogscast. And she was really like, do you know this person? Do you know that person? She was, like, genuinely starstruck just by that association, which is something I'd never had on print ever like one percent of the taste of what it's like to be in that world right right man the hundred percent version they used to come out at lunchtime and they used to have quite a big stalker problem there'd be these weird boys hanging around outside the front door and you'd come <laughs> out and you could see in you could see a bit of a because <sighs> it was me and not like fucking lewis or kim or duncan or someone and you were like oh sorry i'm too boring for you you fucking psychos <laughs> oh so funny you have to tell people like oh the the weird man in the red coats out front or like you know fucking hat boys back or whatever (laughs) at least you'd have to be nice to those people though you're like well you know at at best you're going to be like stalkery at worst you may kill me so like (laughs) right you know you don't have to be that nice to those people i don't think you know yeah yeah that's very bizarre so yeah okay that's that's really funny i didn't know that much of a problem that was um yeah hey you did at least get to work near sandwich sandwich matthew and yeah um, well that's once they moved that that was uh that's a story for next year when they moved offices and we were next (laughs) to sandwich sandwich that's when like i took my weight game really up a gear (laughs) (laughs) good we'll look forward to that in best games of 2017 um Okay, so this was the famous Gamescom you destroyed your knee, Matthew. How was your Gamescom and E3 this year? Do you remember enjoying these? There was quite a lot to talk about. You know, Xbox had kind of come with Xbox Series S and Scorpio. So all of a sudden you had this almost like next-gen hinting conversation going on, which kind of came out of nowhere. That was quite exciting. I remember playing some good stuff, but also like knowing 
I think even by three, maybe the conversation started about Xbox on. So there was this slight back of my head going, well, this might not be me in a few months. E3 was quite hard work. We were on a deadline. I remember like doing a full day of E3 previews and interviews and then going back to the hotel room to, to check pages. For some reason, Future put us in like a kind of party hotel, sitting there checking the spelling of fucking Sherlock Holmes one page review or whatever, <laughs> while you can, out the window, you can see like, you know, beautiful LA people dancing around a swimming pool. If I, if it wasn't on the way out, then that would have definitely have kind of pushed me further along that line. I think I interviewed Camille again at that E3, and he, every time I interviewed Camille, he was always very sleepy, and it was always about scale bound. Obviously, in hindsight, you know that it was fucked, but there was always a slight indication of like, is something wrong with this? Or something up here, just from the way they were talking about it. I interviewed the head of Microsoft Game Studios, Shannon Loftus, who was really interesting, like super switched on. And looking back at OXM, this period, I actually think we were quite confrontational for an official magazine. I didn't feel we were just parroting lines. And in a lot of interviews, especially with like Microsoft people, there's always one or two questions, which I'm surprised we asked, given we were an official mag. I was very hooked on this idea that the Xbox management had all basically come up through the company and had been there since the original Xbox, and they were all a bit hung up on what had worked back then. Was it Voodoo Vince got remade, remastered? Right. This is just nostalgia from people who were there. Like, this thing didn't actually matter. So, like, the idea of going back to it seemed very worrying to me. They'd just shut, like, Lionhead. They'd shut down Press Play, who made Max the Magic Marker and Kalimba. They'd cut out quite a lot of interesting stuff just before. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was all a little bit recore. And you were like, are you guys making good decisions here? Is this good? And we did to ask these questions, which actually, like, I was surprised we were bold enough to do that. You know, you'd think we'd just be like, fuck yeah, Scorpio. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that sort of makes sense. I've got um, some broader thoughts on uh, Xbox, Matthew, that I'll save as we recap the um, injuries <laughs> of this year. But I think that's pretty much kind of like where they're at. I think they were just trying to do damage control after the bad launch and then... I feel like maybe, maybe I guess like some of these games are probably in the post, even like back at, as far back as 2013. But yeah, I do remember. It's like this is one of the starkest comparisons between E3 lineups this year for sure. Mm-hmm. But I suppose like the one thing you could say about Scorpio is that it felt like it was Microsoft trying to course correct from the Xbox One original launch by saying this is our vision of what great hardware looks like, and it's sort of the approach that they would also take to how they made like series x and s i guess where it's like these are games machines and they're very powerful ones and they're the proposition's very straightforward there's yeah no random ports on the back it's just like you know this is our vision of like a great games machine and i suppose they probably also thought you know in this era where playstation's running far ahead of us we can at least say we've got the most powerful console on the market which is what they ended up doing I remember nothing from these games comedy threes, Matthew. I was at E3 2016, but the only photograph evidence I could find of it were pictures of just the uh, the rad like Bethesda stands where they had um, a sort of a, a replica of the spaceship from Prey. Uh, was it Talos One? I think that's what right. it's called. They built one of the, uh, the clockwork knight things from Dishonored as well. Right. Like the sword, clockwork swordsman. 
So I was just taking pictures of cool stuff there. But I don't remember a single interview I did or a preview or anything like that. I think these might have been like bust kind of like Gamescoms and E3s for me. I think I might have just been like, oh, I'm at the wrong appointments. I'm not getting the right stuff. I don't, I just don't remember anything that memorable coming out of it. You know what I mean? Gamescom was definitely dominated by my knee being absolutely (laughs) fucked. Um, I tripped over in the car park on the first day, like, you know, pacing to try and get to my first appointment. So about a, about half an hour before the kind of the show was due to open, and it was one of those like very bad grazes. It just took off like the front of the knee, and so it was bleeding very very heavily because it was just a very big knee wound. I remember thinking I have to go to these appointments, but this is also very substantial amount of like it visually it it looks terrible because it was all running down my knee. I was wearing like three quarter length shorts and it was like bleeding through my shorts and like running down my shin and it's like no i i I have to find a first aid person and i don't speak any german but trying to sort of you know just going up to people and then pointing down to my fucking horror show of a knee the crowds to get into gamescom is there's always just a fucking scrum it's a nightmare but all you have to do is start like limping when your knee's covered in blood and it's amazing how quickly people part for you someone's (laughs) like fuck this guy's gonna bleed on me um (laughs) Yeah, found a first aid guy. He bandaged it up. He also poured loads of that brown healing shit on it. What's that? <laughs> you know, that like disinfectant stuff. So it was kind of like bleeding through the bandage plus this like brown shit, which just made it look like it was like an <laughs> evil septic wound. It couldn't, it, like you couldn't have got a, like a, uh, a Hollywood makeup artist to make it look fucking gnarlier than it did. <laughs> no, it was the grimmest thing I've ever, I've ever seen. Um. And and the funny thing was, like, when you go to Gamescom, obviously, you have the consumer show where you have all the big stands, like you'd probably recognise from E3 or whatever. And then you have the business centre, which is a load of enclosed spaces, like temporary kind of like cubicles get put up. But some people go out of their way to, like, dress them up and make them quite luxurious so that when you're in there having a presentation... You know, it feels like you're in the company of, you know, a company that's spending big. And my first appointment was to see Forza Horizon 3 at the Xbox stand. And Xbox, like, they'd all done it up with, like, white carpets and, like, white sofas. Everything was white. And then here I come, just fucking spewing all this shit out of my knee. And I could see them all being like, oh, this guy's going to fucking bleed all over our stand. (laughs) And sitting down in the little demo room for Forza Horizon 3 and Ralph Fulton, the creative director at Playground, um, who I don't think I'd formally met before, sitting there and and then like i didn't bleed on their carpet and sofa but through the whole presentation i could see eyes nervously looking at my knee that's my big memory of gamescom is people looking at my knee going is that knee gonna spray blood everywhere (laughs) (laughs) it was gnarly as hell like it was and also but it was what was funny about it was how much you insisted on talking about it and narrating what had gone wrong and just talking about your life with the knee that was what was funny about it 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 became part of your personality that week you know the thing is, yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd hung out quite a bit and we knew each other from the office, but like the knee stuff made you laugh. So I was like, well, I'm obviously going to keep talking about this knee <laughs> to Sam because he's obviously really into this, um, which yeah. is the right call. What made me laugh was that it had made enough of the impact on people who I who were doing demos that they were then bringing it up to other journalists because then <laughs> I'd meet people like 
later in the day who I hadn't met up until that point. I remember meeting Tom Phillips from Eurogamer, and he's like, oh, wow, it is as bad as they say. <laughs> and we're like, what? Like, this cannot be the breakout story of Gamescom, that there's this, like, guy going around bleeding everywhere. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah, and I just, I, I've definitely said this on the podcast before, but the funniest bit was when I I went to, like, a Koch Media mixer, and then um, you were, like, lying on the bed, just, like, recovering a day after, after we'd been to Gamescom, and you just went, are you leaving to get away from the knee? And I just went, <laughs> no, in this very unconvincing way, because I did, like, eye it sort of sideways, because we were staying in the same hotel room, and, like, yeah, that was really funny. The idea I just had to not be in the same room as the knee. Um, yeah, very funny. That, and that has that has overpowered all my memories of that um, Gamescom. The only other things I remember are having an interview for FIFA story mode and thinking, why am I here? This makes no sense that I'm here doing this, because I'm completely out of my depth. Um, interviewing like a guy about Titanfall 2 that was pretty good and asking about the single player mode which they had there I don't think I ever used that copy anyway though which is kind of a bummer and then um, going to like a Battlefield 1 demo with Jake Tucker um, who I can't remember which outlet he was with at the time and then just being like I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here either. Loads of appointments where I was like, I'm just out of my depth playing these games I don't really understand. So uh, <laughs> I do remember the Battlefield 1 having those um, those cool big vehicles in them, though. That was quite a fun demo game, but I just it was it's actually impossible to get your arms around like what a you know 32 or 64 person first person shooter is in like a 30 minute press well, demo it's a complete waste of time but that's know? that's always the mad thing about those demos at gamescom or e3 for battlefield because they inevitably go let's have the full 64 players or whatever so you go into a room and there are like 64 demo stations set up and then you you have to wait for like enough journalists or enough people to turn up for them to start the match it's always yeah. a huge ball like there's never no one ever knows what they're doing you never get to play a proper game of it lots of people running around being scared and then a fucking blimp turns up and starts raining down fire on everyone you're like, <laughs> what the fuck is going on um but it's yeah. like there is quite I, I i do quite like the sort of the theater of going into a room and seeing like all those pcs and you're like at least they know like where their game's at its best it's it's quite a ballsy kind of statement of intent yeah also people just seem very up for it they seem very up for the well it was like world war one but it was kind of made up world war one wasn't it it was like just why is there a big <laughs> yeah. train that's got loads of guns on it like that's you know that's not what happened then um it was, so it was kind of like it's very wild impressionistic version of world war one wasn't it and so yeah people seemed to quite ride horses that. that was quite fun yeah, it was it was it seemed pretty cool, but uh, yeah, I just I just I felt completely out of my depth. So that was a weird one where I found there were loads of games I liked from this year, but I don't think I I don't think a single game on my list I actually went to like a press demo for. I don't think I ever ended up doing that. So right in some ways I was just I was just having I was probably completely mismatched with all my appointments basically, which is uh, which is tough. But oh well. Um, so Matthew, what was on the cover of OXM this year? What gives us a kind of like you know an idea of where things are at at the time? Doom, Watch Dogs Two, Battlefield One, Gears Four, Final Fantasy Fifteen. The year before, we'd had big success with uh, Fallout Four and Battlefront Two. There wasn't really anything of that scale, but we were desperately trying to find like what is the next one of these. So we were just you know trying out lots of different games. If any of them have exploded, we would have done like two or three covers of them, but we never did. Like it's I think it is pretty much a year of like every issue is a different cover, which is an indicator of a mag slightly struggling to find something that that really does the business. I was really pleased with our Final Fantasy Fifteen issue we did a kind of crappy version of what edge did in that where they got to interview like all the final fantasy teams 
about every Final Fantasy game. We just got a load of writers we liked to write their personal thoughts on every Final Fantasy game, which, right. you know, it doesn't, like, break any new ground. But I think you wrote about Final Fantasy VII for us. Oh, right. I, I vaguely recall that, yeah. You definitely contributed to this issue. Unhelpfully, we didn't put names on any of it, so there was <laughs> quite personal accounts, but you have no idea who wrote any of it. Um, I also did, like, a 20-page feature on Final Fantasy XV. If I got really good access, I'd just go absolutely mad and do like these huge multi-tiered it was like a feature made up of like five mini features right which i think i stole from opm started doing these matt matt pellet was quite into this this format of like rather than one like two thousand word feature or three thousand word feature you do five eight hundred word features about like individual sort of you know pillars or whatever of the game so i did like the open world the combat the characters i think i did the wider final fantasy 15 extended multimedia thing so like we interviewed the guy who directed king's glaive um <laughs> and things like that so yeah we really went to town on it i felt like that was a that was probably like one of the best issues of xm i did just because it was full of all my smart friends talk, talking about games that they really loved also like for whatever reason like rich stanton was back on the freelance scene at that time so there's quite a lot of writing from him in the mag which is always a treat uh, that's good that seems like you know like uh, you got some good issues there to sign off from your time on print media that's pretty mm. cool yeah i think so uh, yeah i sort of like our year we had like dark souls 3 on the cover no man's sky obviously a big deal this year um total war warhammer which was massive when that came out obviously dawn of war 3 that was announced this year and we had a exclusive on that like a world exclusive which was cool did Dishonored 2 twice, actually went to the world back back to the world twice on that. I think it's because we got to the end of the year and there was a suddenly no new stuff to cover and it became a bit of a nightmare to make the mag. Right. Um, <laughs> and then uh, we did like a, I did like a Gwent cover with a picture of Geralt, which I thought would be quite um, quite good. And I think it actually like did quite badly, that one. But right. I, think it did, I think it did maybe, I think it did ultimately lead to that little statue we got sent of Geralt in the bath with a copy of PC Gamer, though, because it was Gwent on the cover of that one. So uh, right, that worked right. out all right. Um, so yeah, yeah, Deus Ex Mankind Divided. We tried Quake Champions. Don't think anyone bought that one. Um, <laughs> dear God, what a rough year that was. We did this absolute rip-off of a uh, PC Gamer feature. I don't know if it was from this year or the year before, but someone, maybe Chris Thurston, had done like a month of only using a laptop instead of a gaming PC. Right. Does that ring a bell? I don't know if it happened when I was running the mag. It might have been even before right. that. But it was, it was kind of like a, hey, here's an interesting thing. Like, what, what is it like if, if your sole PC is this laptop? And so I thought, oh, could we do something similar about, like, what happens if your only source of entertainment or, like, en- like <laughs> your only electronic device you could interact with is an Xbox One, which is obviously something that would never happen. Like, it, it just, you cannot equate an xbox one and a laptop so we did this feature where tom stone tried to live on xbox one for a month it was largely faked he obviously didn't do this because it's a preposterous (laughs) concept but the idea was like could you use it as a computer like a web browser it was mainly to go into like how beyond games there were like a lot of weird apps being added to the machine it was just an excuse to make a lot of jokes about tom only being able to eat pizza because there was a Domino's Pizza app that they right. added to Xbox One, and it, so in the conceit of this feature, he only he could he all he could eat was food that he could order through an Xbox One, which right. should have been the clue that it was like fake and not a real thing because he obviously <laughs> would have died. We did this photo shoot of Tom slowly going mad in a, in in his quote unquote living room, but it it was actually in my my living room. I've just moved into the house that I'm in now. 
we did all these photos of him like exercising and eating pizzas and all this kind of shit and it wasn't until like we got to like deadline day that I was looking at all the pictures and realized that we hadn't taken down like all my family pictures in the room <laughs> so it like Tom lived in this house where he had all these pictures of like me and Catherine on the right. shelves and he was just like like no one would ever notice that but it, it was like a big in joke on the mag of Tom living in this house with all his pictures of his pictures of his of his boss and his boss's girlfriend <laughs> there were some fun bits in amongst all the brexit yeah for sure yeah i don't want to sound like i'm like totally down on this year because like i think i've d- discussed all the depressing stuff now i remember that feature being pretty good as well i remember reading that because i think you told me that you're quite happy with it and mm. i remember pictures of like a very depressed looking tom doing press-ups and stuff and thought this is a guy who's been like he's properly living the stuff right in life here matthew matthew's putting him through the flame what i loved about tom is you could say like we're gonna do this and he'd just go and do it. When we interviewed him, his application was very much like he was applying for Endgamer. Like, he was a big fan of Endgamer. It was clear that he was a big fan of Endgamer and that style of magazine more than, than OXM. I think he knew me and Alex Dale from, from the mag, from Endgamer. So, you know, it was more like, I really want to work with you Endgamer people on a, th- on a thing, whatever that thing may be. Which obviously, like, speaks to me because I'm, like, you know, a vain monster. Um, <laughs> I just wished we could have worked on, like, a Nintendo mag with him because OXM was super dry by comparison to those Nintendo mags, but he, he brought uh, a lot of good jokes to it. I remember thinking it was such a boring Xbox time to do a mag redesign as well. I felt bad for you, like, this yeah. is just... It's so dry, this whole... All of this this turf is like I don't know it's like astro turf. It's just <laughs> it's, it, it, it's just, bad. it felt it felt a bit desperation though. You know, like they were like sales sales were going down and OPM was still being was still quite strong. So like let's just let's just have something. Let's try and have a beat where we can like talk about OXM in a more positive way. And like our art editor Mark Wynn is like a magazine art design genius. So like having him on it like it was it was it was an amazing. Um, like I loved doing that redesign and being at the heart of it and working with with really super talented team on it. But see earlier story about launch party. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then let's get to what the different companies are up to this year. Mm. So I tend to always do a recap of E3. We're coming up to like the end of Sony's E3s here, actually, despite the fact that they started getting really good at them at this time. So E3 2016. Sony's conference has fewer magic tricks than 2015. That was the one that had the FF7 remake, Last Guardian coming back, and Xiaomi 3 being announced at the same show. It was ridiculous. But I would say this is their playbook on how they won the generation, basically. You start with a God of War reveal. You have Atreus just like uh, sort of playing in the yard, and then like you see Kratos step out of the shadows and everyone in the theater. It's like performed live with this... you got like a an orchestra playing live music, and it just absolutely comes alive, the 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 room when this happens it's just like it seems like a big moment that's followed by uh the, the reveal of days gone and then there was a reveal for the last guardian release date which got a big cheer horizon gameplay that was a game that from the earliest time they announced what like horizon zero dawn was it just captured people's imaginations and they really wanted it uh, you had a uh, detroit become human which you know as ever with um uh, quantic dream is like a contentious game but it's probably you know i think to a lot of people it's considered their strongest strongest work and so that's obviously another ps4 exclusive um, this is the year where PSVR launches. So you have a lot of that this year, but then you actually get to the end of the the conference, and they still have more stuff. They have 
that Death Stranding reveal um, where it's like crabs and Norman Reedus and a baby, which I thought was really dumb. That, I think like actually the, that reveal might be why I've still not played Death Stranding because I was like, what the fuck is this? And I still feel that way a little bit about it. Yeah. And then, but then it ends <laughs> with, um, you, <laughs> you have like Spider-Man on PS4 from Insomniac to end with as well. So you suddenly have this like, you know, major exclusive, a really obvious opportunity sat there. What if someone made a good Spider-Man game instead of all of these Activision studios having one year to make bad ones, which is what had been happening for like about, I don't know, 10 years plus of that license. And so you had, yeah, you had Insomniac making this PS4 exclusive game and people were just so up for it. So to bookend, like, to have God of War and Spider-Man revealed in the same conference just feels like, oh my God, that's just a generation winner right there. I think this is the year where you get the... All the Sony first-party games are like these over-the-shoulder, weighty things. And I'm thinking, a little bit of a shame that God of War couldn't be like its own thing, you know, in its original terms. That was proven to be quite a foolish stance eventually, obviously. I love that game. Yeah, I don't know if I could really enjoy it as much just from a, like, oh, God, we're really struggling in Xbox <laughs> land. You know, you're yeah. kind of like, fuck those guys. <laughs> More specifically, people who have magazines about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. The Spider-Man thing looking so good. I mean, it made me laugh because earlier in the year, Insomniac made a terrible Metroidvania that year. Do you remember Song of the Deep? No, I don't remember that at all. Oh, it's it's absolutely baffling i have no idea what happened here a really miserable underwater metroidvania i think you play as a submarine it's absolute garbage i have no idea why they made it for them then to come out and be like oh no here's our big play that everyone's excited about you're like oh god damn it we've got song of the deep on xbox i think song of the deep was on everything but that's an indicator of like what we got from insomniac and what sony (laughs) got from insomniac was 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 kind of rough tempted at all by psvr at the time uh no i think because we'd already had vr on pc we had a oculus rift the uh, very earliest version of it in the office since 2013 and i tried it and been like this is definitely cool but also i'm gonna need convincing that uh, first of all i need i need like one platform to succeed really so i know it's worth buying games for it and you know that has still not happened in vr there's still Mm. like a lot of like that's going to be a nightmare for game preservation VR because there are PSVR games on PS4 that no longer work on anything else. So they're going to be lost to time unless they're ported over. Not all of them will be. And then obviously there was like there was a HTC there's a HTC Vive this year and the, I think the first Oculus Rift like proper consumer model launches this year too. So I think PSVR did seem like they did make a very good pitch though. They had like that Star Wars VR thing here, which everyone said was amazing. The Battlefront X Wing one. Mm. And then there's like, uh, yeah, and then there's like some FF15 stuff. And I remember like actually going around um, Louise Blaine's house this year who worked on Games Radar. And she had like the, um, the uh, I, th- I think like there was maybe an Until Dawn spinoff they did on PSVR that I thought was pretty good. Oh. It was like sort of like being on a spooky ride sort oh, of thing. Yeah, the, the Rush of Blood, was it? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, yeah, it's, they, they've just done a similar thing on PSVR 2 for um, the Dark Pictures anthology. Where you sort of, it's like ghost houses based on on those properties, and you shoot targets, and ghosts jump up and get up in your grill. <laughs> yeah, I did think PSVR was the best of the VR I'd experienced at that time because it was like really comfortable headset and really straightforward to get it working. It wasn't a faff to use or anything like that. Um, whereas I think well, like I had the whole camera element of it was a bit of a pain. That's true, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But um, I don't know. It, it seemed like it was coming together, but I just wasn't. I wasn't totally won over yet 
um mm. uh, yeah and still with vr vr I, I still see vr as something that's like a work in progress but i am i am invested in its success i want to see it do well and i do i do enjoy vr experiences but yeah i didn't jump in at this time did you get one at this time or was that a bit later yeah i think i i bought one at launch played batman and then never played it again <laughs> yeah well that batman i i had it was actually i think it was at this game com, gamescom that i did play batman arkham vr and i was just amazed by it like the you know, it was those um, rock steady production values applied to VR, wasn't it? I know it's not a very mm. long game, but it, as as a demo experience, it was one of the best demos I think I've ever had. Going into the Batcave and all that stuff, it was pretty mm. amazing. Yeah, so you have that, Matthew. Then Xbox's conference, you've kind of re- re- gone through most of it already, I think. But you have the One S to start with, so a smaller version of the console. They do an Xbox Play Anywhere thing, which is like if you buy the game on xbox you get it on pc as well i think they kind of abandoned that after a while um it's still sort of, it's still sort of true though is it though because i think when i bought master chief collection on oh no i suppose I guess because well them. a lot of these are, i guess what i'm thinking of is a lot of the games are on xbox and pc game pass yeah that's so true, i guess yeah. you're not you don't technically own them on both yeah well i suppose like the thing is as well like, i'm thinking of it as i i was about to say oh i bought master chief collection but i bought it on steam not on xbox store so if i'd have bought an xbox store i might have right. owned it on both maybe i'm not sure yeah but, yeah yeah so but it was pretty cool for a while i mean it still means that like when i got um when i bought like halo wars 2 and like it still works on my Xbox Series X or my PC, which I think is pretty cool. So I like that they did this. They were trying to like make inroads to PC, I think, to probably partially compensate for the generation being so sort of pear shaped. But you know, <laughs> they were a bit ahead of the curve on this because Sony now do the same thing. Sony, I bet Sony's making more money from its like PC version supports than it is from its own first party lineup on PS5 at the moment because. That stuff just sells and sells now on PC. I bet Spider-Man's made an absolute fortune on PC. It's right. basically free money, isn't it? Once you've done the port, it's like you just make that money forever. So, yeah. So they have that. The Forza Horizon 3 reveal, which, you know, that was something that regardless of however Xbox was doing, everyone agreed Forza Horizon was like a cool thing that was happening on those consoles, right? And Oh, this yeah. Is Great a- trailer this as time. well. I think this is the one with Wicked Game, the cover. Oh, it's oh, really right. good. Yeah, and like, just people were really buzzing for this. I think this this feels like it was a bit of a breakout in terms of its popularity as well, because this is on PC too, and it just felt like yeah, people agreed this was this was something that if you bought an Xbox and you played this, you wouldn't be disappointed. Basically, release date for Recall as established, Recall very lukewarm, kind of like almost like a 360 era exclusive, but too much. Oh. It was like an undue amount of like attention put on well, it. Well, it's because like they they always played up that Armature has got like from the creators of metroid prime because it was some of the creative leads from the original metroid prime team set off to make armature who mainly like a port studio they did the ports of metal gear solid didn't they to to ps vita and and yeah next gen consoles but um yeah that was just such a bust that game that's fucking rocket recall is total toilet (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you have that you have dead rising 4 announced which would ultimately be a bit of a dud and get that studio closed so quite cursed there uh, Halo Wars 2 gets a release date. Halo Wars was one of those things. I actually think this game was maybe two years either way. Well, maybe two years later, this would have had a bit of bigger deal. But I think it released during like some of the roughest times for Xbox in terms of the amount of attention paid to it. But they got Creative Assembly to make the the sequel, and it was it was really good. It was like a really really good version of like an RTS on consoles. You had Scalebound uh, coming to PC um, would eventually get cancelled, of course, for all formats, just gone. Um, <laughs> Finally, had Project Scorpio reveal, which was the One X. Uh, so it feels like it was a bit of a dud. But to be honest, though, that I think for Xbox, 
them just having a conference where things didn't go wrong, where things didn't get a bad reception was the win at this time because they just they were just such like repair and restore mode and then they would gradually get better over time or still a bumpy mm. road quite still a lot of years to get to this year's you know e3 era conference where you know we agreed that they'd absolutely smashed it and things are looking very bright for xbox but yeah like yeah, nothing but, damaging like nothing. no and that's 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 like a step forward <laughs> yeah it is it is but it's hard to contrast that with with sony's conference here whereas the idea of like putting single player games at the center of what you're doing as your sort of overall ethos to these are the games we're making and putting out just seems so wise it was what people wanted in an age of like multiplayer things and free to play things sony were like yep you pay 50 quid and you get the game and the game is good and we put loads of money into it and there's a good story in it because we we know that you care about that just seemed like such a good playbook you know um Mm. so yeah it kind of makes sense to me that they ran away with it but matthew Nintendo still exists in 2016, allegedly. What were they up to this year? And is it a bit of an anus horribleness for them? <laughs> it certainly is a horrible anus. Um, <laughs> I was so like wrapped up with Xbox. I wasn't keeping too much of an eye on them, and there wasn't much to see. I mean, uh, I thought, oh, what, what did like Nintendo Life call the best Nintendo games of, of, of 2016? And their best Wii U game was Twilight Princess HD, which is like an indicator of where things were. It was all a little bit Star Fox Zero. It was all a little bit Metroid Prime Federation Force. Oof. No, thank you. It's all a little bit Detective Pikachu and Pokken Tournament. I think this is probably the worst worst year of Nintendo releases there's ever been. There's no volume. The actual quality is super low. They don't make anything anything anyone truly loves one one 3ds exception if there's any strengths and any wins it's on 3ds where i think the the is this pokemon sun and moon maybe fire emblem fates obviously fire emblem was still doing its thing people were still into it it was still kind of quite riding high after its big awakenings reinvention so that was okay but like it's the intake of breath before switch so it feels like inevitable the reason switch comes out the gate the way it does and has the games it does is because they're not making games for these platforms anymore that does feels super obvious to me but it is it is grim i'd occasionally review things for games master i think i reviewed twilight princess hd i definitely played it for some reason um but uh yeah sad like o O and m could not have survived this year yeah it was it's a it seems really bad on paper the i I think like i kind of noticed this when we were doing the wii u uh, hall of fame where we just went through and got i got to 2016 the list and it was like basically two games and they were just not a going concern obviously they they do a reveal the switch this year right that happens in october i believe and then yeah for, for some reason i always think of the biggest moment of the switch was when it was on jimmy fallon's show because that was right at the end of this year i think it was like right near where the game awards right. were and so you had them showing it on like live us tv and that felt quite savvy and it felt like there was a bit of buzz of hope about it you know and yeah obviously you knew breath of the wild was going to happen that was like in the air wasn't it so yeah um, and so yeah that, like it, it start the turnaround i guess starts at the very end of the year you know that switch event was great i remember taking a day off work to go to it odyssey wasn't there there were big banners for odyssey but you could play breath of the wild mario kart was there snipper clips was there one two switch was there but I can remember sitting there playing like Snipper Clips, the kind of two player co op on a single screen with like each of us with a little controller. I remember talking to um, 
other friends and developers were there who'd been working with the console already like they'd had they'd had versions of it and it felt really exciting you were like oh yeah this is this is gonna this is gonna be pretty great you could just tell it was gonna be special and you know in the meat of realizing that i was not very good at making videos about xbox to go and have this big dose of exciting nintendo stuff was kind of rough <laughs> you're like oh this is gonna be good <laughs> i wish i could be talking about this instead oh you perpetually <laughs> underestimate yourself you are good at making videos i'm genuinely proud of my rps video work because right. that was like me it was me saying my words and what i wanted to say about games i just don't think there's much that i made for xbox i'd want anyone to watch or to have my name on it you know Right. Okay. Right. Fair enough. I think, like, with the learning things, though, I think you end up. What you realise the older you get is that no one really teaches you how to do things in jobs. Like, most jobs are learning by doing. You know, so yeah. it's okay that you went into it and then just figured it out. Like, it's it's fine. And you've been yeah. you've been very successful. Now you're running a, another channel, and it's, it seems pretty cool. You know. Okay. So um, that's that's Nintendo, and that's what's that was what's going on with the E3s more generally this year. A few more big events happened this year. So, like I say, launch of three VR headsets. That's a big concern. Evolution Studios is shut down by Sony. They made Drive Club and they went away. Sega for <laughs> Atlas, which would end up being a, that was maybe one of the best acquisitions ever in terms of like things that would pay off in years to come. Future, our employer at the time, bought Imagine Publishing. My old employer. That was a weird day when that happened. PS4 Pro launches this year. A, a good version of a PS4, but. I don't think any of the upgrades it offered ended up that being that big a deal, really, in, in retrospect, compared to what the PS5 would offer. Um, you have the NES Classic launch this year, too, and sell out immediately and become a big speculator market thing. That whole mini console thing started <laughs> happening. So that was a Nintendo thing that happened this year, Matthew. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. Line head shut, of course. Oh, right. I missed that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a, that was a bummer. So there's a few like quiet studio closures that go on throughout this year, but that, those are the top line ones. Mm. Um yeah, the only other two things I was going to mention, Matthew, is I went on a couple of trips this year. I went on a Mafia 3 trip that was, like, ridiculous and great. That involved, like, they hired a marching, like, a band to basically march through. We are in New Orleans. They marched through New Orleans because the game was set in a kind of New Orleans-type setting. Um, <laughs> on the way to the press trip, that was ridiculous. We went on, like, this Did kind of... Did you have like, to be part of the parade? <laughs> I just kind of walked politely alongside. Um, just, it was, yeah, just tried to stay out of view while other press were filming it. And there was like a boat trip element to it, like a river boat trip and stuff like that. And it was so good, though, because New Orleans is the type of place you never got to go on a press trip. You always end up going to San Fran or L.A. or New York. And obviously, amazing privileged position to be in. But mm. it means you only ever have like the tiniest snapshot of America. And New Orleans is so its own kind of place with its own vibe. So that was like an amazing trip to get to do. Yeah, it went like sort of like... It was like crocodile, like going past crocodiles on a little boat and stuff like that. It was pretty pretty full-on as trips you like live and let die got this all wrong (laughs) there was a yeah (laughs) live and let die definitely presents a different let's say um interpretation of what uh you know that sort of sort of like bayou kind of area is like but um yeah so uh it was that was actually an amazing press trip there are a few images from me on that press trip where i look like i'm having the time of my life i look genuinely delighted i'm on a boat with uh, jj from games radar and i look fucking like i'm having such a good time so that was <laughs> i good. need to see this picture i want to see what that looks like 
it kind of looks like uh, sort of Miami Vice vibes. Like we look like we're a sort of little detective duo. Um, he's like wearing <laughs> well, that, sunglasses. That is a show I would watch. You and James Jarvis <laughs> solving mysteries using the skill sets you have now as as media people. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly, I bumped into him at NQ64 yesterday in London. Really? That was, yeah, he was, he was there with some mates. It was very strange to, to do that. But yeah, I like JJ. That was that was a fun trip. Yeah, so that was good. And then I also went on the very strange Halo Wars Two trip I've talked about before in the ghost town in Washington. I can't remember oh, what right. the, the town's called, but it's like one of these sort of like tech startup towns where they have like a, a big shopping mall and all the stuff you need to live in a town. But there's like no one there. There's like no children there. There's like <laughs> the three four three were basically based there. We went there to to play Halo Wars two and to have a little tour of their Halo museum, and that was that was pretty fun. Although I suppose like the way things have ended up with 343 is i imagine like the the vibe of it is quite different these days but yeah it's just empty mall it's like 10 a.m on a friday and the mall was empty there's no one there like a few people in starbucks but no one walking through this giant mall complex where everything was open it was like a twilight zone episode where everyone had disappeared and i couldn't sleep and i woke up at 5 a.m went for a walk and found these weird like uh, sort of like barriers at the edge of the town the way oh, yes. like, you just couldn't there was like a, a road closed and it seemed like the the like, one of the only roads out of town had been closed and it was. I felt like I just felt like I was in some kind of like nightmare world because I was like, I think just because I wasn't having the best time at work either. I thought, oh, maybe I've like, you know, maybe this is like my Silent Hill sort of like retribution place, so I have to like resolve something here in order to leave. <laughs> um, that was bizarre, but quite quite a fun one. Um, I don't suppose you had any other trips, Matthew, this year? No, it was it was just all work. Um, I mean, E three and Gamescom were kind of kind of trips, but um... yeah. They were well. The hotel we were in at E3. Do you remember Dan Dawkins talking about the fridge, which led to a nightclub? <laughs> uh, not really. Um, did you, did you talk about that on the podcast? I don't remember. We were all in in the, in the same bar, and I think he went down. And apparently, like the hotel we were in had this gimmick where there was like in the kitchen there was like a fridge, and if you open up the fridge, it was actually a door to another secret club. Only people in the know. If you had like the code word, they'd take you into the kitchen, and then you'd go through this fridge into this into this nightclub now <laughs> we have to have dan dawkins back on the podcast so he can tell the story properly but <laughs> i can remember checking out pages in my room and then hearing about dan dawkins going through a fridge into a fucking wonderland <laughs> and thinking well we're having a very different experience of the c3 <laughs> yeah that's funny i feel like i wouldn't have been welcome in the first non-secret nightclub do you know what i mean never mind the secret one so that's, oh yeah uh, yeah that's good okay in which case matthew the the epic preamble is over let's take a break and come back with our top 10 games of 2016 let's do it Welcome back to the podcast. So we got two top tens of our favorite games of 2016. If you're a new listener and you just listen to that entire epic preamble, you're like, where the hell are the best games of 2016 in the title? This is where they are. So you found them. Well done. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be good. Um, Matthew, anything to say about your list before we get started? Like the approach you've taken, things you've left out, that sort of stuff. I actually did have to cut out quite a lot of stuff I really like. My Bottom three or four could probably be different games on a different day, but um, I'm 
generally happy with this. I think this is going to be the, the least surprising one yet. Though, please do keep listening. <laughs> yeah, I've really, I really wrestled with this. I think the honorable mentions actually have some of the juiciest stuff of like, you know, one of these that we've done. It turned out I played a lot from this year. I was re- reasonably prolific in what I was ticking off, and mm. yeah, there's definitely they're definitely probably around twenty nine out of ten games from this year. It was a really good year. So yeah, struggle with it a little bit. But um, Matthew, do you want to kick off with your number ten? I'm going to kick off with a very me pick. Zero time dilemma. Here he is. Here he goes. <laughs> Here he is. Back on his <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> I think I have picked each game from the the Zero Escape trilogy in each respective year that we've done done these episode recaps. This is, of course, uh, Kataro Ichikoshi's visual novel series about various groups of people thrust into uh, insane games of death. This is the third part, definitely the least loved part, I would say, by the fandom. But I would say even a slightly weaker iteration of Zero Escape is still super thrilling. Three teams of three find themselves locked in this facility where in order to escape, they have to kill six people. So the other two teams, there is a voting mechanism to get rid of people. There are bracelets which make people forget what happened in the last 90 minutes that go off every once in a while. I mean, there's there's all kinds of sci-fi madness in this. There's cloning, there's time travel, there's alternate worlds. There's a lot. But that's the beauty, I think, of what Uchikoshi does as a writer and a creator. He kind of takes this big soup of stuff, the rules of his death games, and then he layers in sci-fi ideas, he layers in some fantastical ideas, he puts all these quite weird, incongruous characters in the mix, you don't really know how, like, you know, there's like an old guy, there's a weird boy who's got like a giant metal ball for a head, there's a guy, I think he worked in an ice cream store, like, you're thinking, how the fuck have these people come together, what's the relevance of them, And, and the beauty of these games is seeing all the parts kind of snap together into this big mechanical hole where he eventually kind of like through playing it over and over again and doing different uh, branching choices you realize how the whole thing connects and this big grand network reveals itself if it is one of the weaker ones i actually don't think there's much in it it has one of like the all-timer twists in it from him a big perspective twist that just makes you kind of question how you've kind of been interacting with a particular part of this story in a, in a really clever way that i'll that i'll never forget so Zero Time Dilemma. Don't play it without having played uh, the other two. Nine Persons, Nine Doors, uh, Nine Hours, and Virtue's Last Reward first, because this does require previous knowledge. I think weirdly they gave this away on PS Plus with, for the PS Vita, and so you could just right. have it. And I was there thinking, but playing this by itself seems like a bad idea. So uh, I wonder if anyone just tried that and was baffled for several, right, yeah. several hours. Yeah, I um, I I'm sort of like a, you know, one of the I suppose it's like one of the two series that you've talked about that I've considered checking out off the back of our visual novels chat on these right. podcasts, Matthew. You certainly made this and Danganronpa sound pretty exciting. So uh, yeah, those, I, those feel like the two. You know, this is less problematic than Danganronpa. This trilogy and more satisfying as a complete work. Danganronpa games are a bit more standalone. Like this, you definitely have to. To enjoy it as a trilogy. Well, another thing I really love about this particular game is it opens with a coin flip, and if the coin flip goes your way, that's just the end of the game. Like right. a, a villain's like 
you know, if I if I flip this thing, you're going to be trapped in this like insane game, which is then the rest of the game. But if you win the coin flip, you get to just go free and you'll all be fine. Um, so I like the idea that it opens with this this game of chance about whether the game happens at all, um, right? Which is quite cute. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, I like that idea. That's uh, that's a cool notion. Okay, interesting. Imagine playing that, getting the the winning in and being like, oh, was that it? And then just trading it in. <laughs> like how you can finish Far Cry 4 if you just stand there and wait right. for the guy yeah. to come back with the thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like that idea. Yeah, there are probably some people who have had that experience, Matthew. Okay. Oh, okay, maybe. No, go, no, go on, go on. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I was just thinking, like, if you if that happened to you and you were like, you thought this game was a minute long, I'd really, <laughs> like, I'd worry for that person. <laughs> That's true, yeah, yeah. That's like that's a uh, you know thirty quid for for that would be would be lean, <laughs> right? My number ten really wrestled with this. There's two games, actually three games that have been vying for this spot because I I feel like there's a a canon list of like back page classics that must be in this top ten, and then like one or two heart picks that I just knew I had to have in the list as well. So this ten position, sorry, Firewatch and Tom Clancy's The Division, but I'm giving it to Super Hot. So oh okay. Of all the games, of all the kind of indie games from this year, like I think that Superhot is is my favorite because it was something that I felt was missing from games a little bit. It was kind, of, it's kind of like a sort of best described as like a puzzle shooter, I suppose, where essentially you are. It has this very stark kind of like red characters on a white background visual style, and every time you, anytime you move in the game, time moves forward. So you find yourself basically dropped into the middle of like movie set pieces you're just you know being shot at next to an elevator and it's like okay you look around and you can dot you can dodge the bullets you can you know very carefully grab a gun in midair while like a, an enemy has thrown it or like you know or sort of like punch an enemy shoot an enemy that sort of thing but once mm. you've shot the bullet you then have to move in order to see the bullet follow its trajectory so it's really like about the set pieces playing out and you controlling the sequence of events in a way that makes you feel like a kind of action superhero, but is anything but brainless as well. It's all about, you know, coordinating an attack. So this person who runs to this place will hit this bullet when they kind of get there, basically, and that that sort of thing. So it's mm. catches that kind of like matrixy combat experience maybe better than any other modern game does. And even though the game itself is very lean, about three hours, with a lot of narrative stuff that I just completely skipped over. I think there might be some hidden narrative stuff in there. I just found this really scratched an itch. Something I just really felt like was missing from games. Something I really just needed. And I've replayed it a couple of times. I've played the VR one, which is really cool as well. And yeah, it just felt like, I don't know, this this was a hit for a, a real good reason. It was just, I think it was like a, it might have started as like a game jam demo that became a full game and then they built a whole whole team and a company off the back of it so mm. really love super hot i think it's i think it stood the test of time what do you think of that one matthew one of those games that instantly recognizable as itself in any screenshot the whole moving time pitch is just so clean the fun of the scenarios and the interactions of like you hit this guy and then he this thing flies out of his hands and you can catch it it follows film rules in terms of how you think props and things should work in these scenarios i think what i like about it is when you find yourself surrounded by people you end up doing a thing where you're like okay i'll fire these bullets now and then like i'll return to this that situation later to see if they've hit him and see if he's down and then in the meantime go and like clobber this guy and throw my empty gun at this other guy and then like 
and then like the, your reward for doing for coordinate all this and making all that all those pins fall down is you get to watch it play out in sort of real time at the end it goes super hot super hot while playing a replay of everything you just did and that can make you feel like an absolute fucking superstar i think so yeah that's even really if you're good. even if you're playing badly it still gives you that that shot of like oh wow i really do feel like an action superhero so yeah what a game really really love it curious to see what that studio ends up making down the line there's a really good level in like a lift which is a bit like the the just you and a load of guys in a lift which has got big captain america cold cold war no whatever that civil one is war. yeah winter soldier civil war Oh yeah, no, it was Winter Soldier that one, wasn't it? Yeah, the one where he fights all the guys in the lift, or Mission Impossible Three. That's true. That is very much the prototypical sort of like version of that scene, isn't it? So yeah, yes, true. I I remember that. I think any like of these situations when you're surrounded by dudes just works really well because you really do get that feeling of you've you've been dropped into the middle of the set pieces. It's about to kick off. That's that's what it does so well. So yeah, seeing how the level designers play with that works really nicely. It's interesting that you mentioned Firewatch there also. Because that that was that was in my list of of maybes. I really like like the first half of it, where it's it feels a bit more like everyday life. I actually I actually go off it the more it kind of hints at like the mysteries of the world. I think like the the tough thing with reevaluating this genre in retrospect is like it's just not a genre that's in vogue right now, is it? It's just like it's we are not in the walking simulator narrative delivered to you in that form times you know it's just it's so not what games are currently about that i struggle to get excited about it in retrospect it feels like a thing that happened and then i just sort of moved on from it that certainly had the most distinctive setting and i don't know how tuned in i was to the dynamic between the two characters like i i I like that about it but i think that maybe yeah like it's the sort of like lonely guy in this tower and then trying to actually like patrol this place and figure out what the deal was and see you know see what was going on i maybe maybe i slightly preferred that too i don't know but it's it was mm. it was certainly strong it was certainly singular you know um it was mm. a huge deal when it came out wasn't it everyone was just excited that they got to write about a game with one with the guy from mad men in it yeah absolutely yeah i did i did wrestle with that i wrestled with the division because i played um i, I had to play a ton of it to play the, to to uh, play write about the division too and i did actually end up having a really good time with it it's quite a quite a deep and cool game and that new york setting does like definitely stays with you the way they um, brought it to life but uh yeah um let's face it super hot is a, a more adds a bit of a bit more spice to the list so yeah yeah definitely um, what's your number nine matthew talking of spice kirby planet robobot nice this continues the fine work of kirby triple deluxe which was the big 3ds kirby game only this one puts kirby in a huge mech suit which is obviously going to be a good thing cute kirby in anything strange and mechanical is, is like instant win it's just a really confident solid feeling 2d platformer uses the 3ds in lots of fun ways with like things coming in and out of the the foreground and background and these big bosses that take up lots of space famously ends with a proper platinum level insane space set set piece which you know is always a good thing i I just think this era of kirby is, is i think it's just a period where they really sort of solidified the magic of 2d kirby the fun of experimenting with his abilities but also just with the extra technical kind of polish that they they had on these 3ds versions i feel bad i've included this and maybe not another mech game <laughs> <laughs> oh i think i have a feeling what that game might be matthew um <laughs> yeah but this is a very you pick and so far i'm actually i i did i wonder before we did this episode how's matthew gonna like bend the list to his like sort of nintendo 
you know, for want of a better phrase, bullshit, you know? So, ah! Well, I mean that in a good way. I mean, I just thought, how is he going to, like, Nintendo up this list in a year that seems so non-Nintendo? But actually, it passed me by this came out, and I remember this being very high. In your, was this number one on your list of Kirby games? It's one of those lists where things sort of shift around constantly. But, yeah, it, it's up high. I just, I think both the 3DS ones are great. This one has, like, more of an angle because, the, you know, it isn't just this mech power-up, but, like, the mech power-up has kind of ability versions as well like kirby so changes changes it up and even when he's out of the mech you still have kirby gets all his abilities and becomes all his different characters it just it just feels like there's a lot more in this one and the the kind of the fighting other giant robots gives this game uh just a little a little bit more kind of coherence if triple deluxe is a vague fantasy world this one's maybe kind of easier to buy into they're both they're both pretty great but um yeah. yeah, Planet Robobot. I just like the, the word Robobot <laughs> of like the idea of combining robot with robot. I think is pretty audacious. <laughs> this um, this seemed like this seems like if you played um, Kirby: The Forgotten Land, this is probably the one to go and get after that, Matthew, because it's the more more recent kind of inventive Kirby game. Yeah, I, guess, I mean, you know? obviously the two D, three D things different, but like the attitude and, and what they value in terms of like unlockable modes and their surprising value for money in terms. Of of how much shit is crammed into the games and also yeah. just kind of like how they escalate in the kind of mad places they go to yeah there's a lot of kind of connective tissue there yeah i, I also i've i've like this is one of those 3ds games i've been weighing up buying and like it it has it was pricey for quite a while but now i think amazon actually has new copies of it so maybe i should just grab it before like all yeah. those copies are just gone forever <laughs> yeah get some um, robobot yeah robobot that is ridiculous <laughs> is that meant to be like a robocop kind of riff or something like that like the name i, I don't or is that just meant to be the, the like you say the audacity of combining the word robot twice to make a new word <laughs> no i thought well I, I would like to think it's it's the latter i mean there isn't yeah. like a an Oata asks where they're like we're all big robocop heads here at <laughs> how i mean robocop has got like a very different energy to kirby yeah absolutely so uh yeah okay good stuff all right that's a, a good pick again i thought this was like a complete dud year for the 3ds but you have proved I mean, me we wrong. are pretty much out of the nintendo games now right okay that's it it's done that's it now okay fair okay my number nine is a game that matthew does not like it is the last guardian on playstation 4 so in e3 2009 they revealed this game coming to ps3 it was about a boy and a, a little boy summoning this like dog like bird creature like a dog with wings essentially and it was the from Fumitu uh, Ueda um, who was obviously the um, the director of Shadow of the Colossus and Ico two you know era defining PlayStation 2 games so this was hotly anticipated and then for whatever reason the game just fades from view and never comes out on PlayStation 3 which kind of sim- symbolic of that generation's like woes for sony i think just like can't make good things happen they just all good things must die and we must have brown shooters basically but years later at e3 2015 it's revived it feels almost like the success of the playstation 4 played some part in the incentive to get this done to me like it's like this is something we can do for playstation players that will absolutely fucking love even though i think that ueda was always still connected to this game in some way and then so yeah it comes it comes back in 2016 they finally finally release it right at the end of the year it's very different i think to ico and shadow the colossus what it has in common i think is a slight fiddliness in controls but what it also has in common is the i the 
the idea of creating a world and type of story and method of delivering the story that's not really like what you get in other games so the the magic of this game is how amazingly the um the beast um trico in the game and um and the little boy uh, are basically they you know they interact like they they feel real and even though you are kind of ordering the monster around he feels like a real enough creature that he will sometimes disobey your orders or do something slightly different it's like trying to get a dog to do something in real life and the dog mm. sort of sometimes just stands nonplussed by something not really knowing what it's supposed to be doing there's a bit of that with this where it's like he's like a half reliable companion extremely powerful you need his power in order to like you know basically deal with enemies and to um to physically move between bits of the world essentially like the entire game is about climbing out of like one hole like where trico was chained up and where you were and trying to get to the very top of this this kind of like space you look up and you look down and you can basically see where you're going and where you've been for the entire game it's quite a quite an amazing effect they create i think i really loved it and i think that it sort of like technically struggled a bit on ps4 which i think like shed some light on why why it maybe didn't come to ps3 because it just it seemed impossibly possibly demanding for that just because how just how detailed the creature's animations were are out of control and it leads to this finale that is definitely the best bit of the game it's like i guess like some mild spoilers here but let's say like let's say trico or trico however you pronounce that that creature is not the only one of his kind and there are other kind there are other creatures of that species that you encounter late in that game and that finale is so extraordinarily rendered and it's such a different change in pace from what you've been experiencing up until that point that i think it just really leaves an impact there's also this kind of like very sort of like mournful the little boy telling the story as you know as an old man in retrospect framing to the story which mm. i think lends it this sort of like ghibli-esque kind of like melancholy this was a creature i encountered once we had this really powerful bond and then like we didn't see each other again kind of thing like it that's just like, really that's like us on this podcast looking back on my knee story at GameStop. <laughs> you're like i met this weird creature with a bleeding knee and we had an intense bond for three days in cologne <laughs> so i really like the last guardian um i i acknowledge its flaws it does like i say it feels like it's got some ps2 era control quirks to it but of all the stuff that sony made in this generation this is the thing where i was like well sensible heads have prevailed that they've got this done like it was a long wait and it was just about worth it thoughts matthew where i'm down on this is just a very basic basic bitch take on like i find the controls a bit fiddly and the thing a bit unreliable that is the point like you say it's a strength to many but it, it just wasn't my cup of tea um I always feel bad about this one because, like, the people who love it, you know, they love it in such a, like, profound way or they just really, really connected with that creature. I, I, I just didn't have that. But I fully understand where that connection can come from and why that would be profound. I wish I did like it in the way that, you know, I've read from from people who are into this game. So I don't think it's a bad, I don't think it's a bad game. It just didn't quite work for me. I think it's cool that we can have games which tread that kind of risky ground of they're going to be your favourite thing or not for you at all. Yeah, I think I think as well that one thing I will say is I don't think it has the stickiness of Shadow of the Colossus or Ico, which are games I've replayed over the years, you know. So I've never replayed this. I don't think I necessarily feel like I need to. I think there's there's may, one difference I think maybe exists between this and those games is that it doesn't have the same texture of like the world being mysterious and strange and you not understanding it but wanting to know more about it, which right. I actually think that Ico and Shadow Colossus as a combo did incredibly well where you were like, okay, you can sort you can see the castle from Ico in Shadow of the Colossus and then the ending of the story connects back to Ico 
and mm. then there's also the kind of there was also the weird real life mythology of everyone knowing that they were like some creatures they cut from shadow colossus and people determined to go out and find the secrets and things like that and i think that you could just live in that world and soak things up in a way that you couldn't with this game i think you just saw the end of the story of this game and that was kind of the end of your relationship with it so mm. that's why i've got it a little bit lower i think than maybe i don't know maybe some people are expecting based on how i've talked about shadow colossus in the past so uh yeah that kind of makes sense matthew okay we come to your number eight, Matthew. What have you got? Final Fantasy fifteen. Yeah, okay. So that's higher, slightly higher on my list, so we'll come back to that one very shortly. So my number eight is Titanfall 2. Not on your list, right? Isn't on my list. I've only got, like I say, space in my heart for one mech, and it's driven by a pink blob. That's completely fair. So I, yeah, Titanfall 2. So the original Titanfall came along. was uh, seemed like it was a relatively big seller, but obviously was tied to Xbox One, and Xbox One didn't become like a huge deal, so it felt like it never took off in the way that you know destiny did on ps4 for example which was you know tied to that console and its success and in lots of ways this is it was it was a shooter where you know you could summon in a mech get in the mech and there was a, this like a symbiosis between you and that mech and how you played the game and and it was a really exciting sort of pulse pounding first person shooter experience in titanfall 2 they decided to do a story this time they didn't in the first one and i think that was a very fair criticism of the first game is it just didn't have that thing to get you into the game to teach you the mechanics and to get you excited about it but in some ways it i think this it was a good thing for how this campaign ends up being as good as it is so the the real magic of titanfall 2 is it's quite an unusual first person shooter campaign it doesn't feel like it's trying to wow you with an amazing story it, the story of it is basically that you and your robot companion um, in the game your mech companion um, i think it's like bt i think is the name yeah. of the, the robot that relationship sort of like slowly builds over the course of the game and you have this n- very nice connection between the main character and it but the the shooter levels you're you're playing through basically are are quite inventive. There's a mix of like using uh, Titanfall's athleticism, so like the, your platforming skills to get to get through levels. So there are some levels that feel more platforming based. There are some levels where it's very much about like a high concept. So we just talked about this in the Excel, but they had the obviously that um, the prefab house manufacturing uh, location, which was the factory, which was an amazing setting because it allowed you to use your skills in different ways because those prefab houses would be tilted in different directions so sometimes you're wall running sometimes you're just fighting enemies inside these like you know basically like fake houses which was really cool and then it would just do it would just do some amazing things i think with what you could do with like first person shooter levels and then it was just kind of gone in about five or six hours very very brief but short and sharp and just full of ideas so that combined with the fact that the multiplayer was even better, um, just like, you know, sort of building on the first game and that that experience, which I actually I did get to sample a bit more of when they re-released Titanfall 2 on, uh, well, they put it on Steam a right. couple of years ago, is that just how amazing it looks and sounds and feels, just the, the sound of gunfire and then like mechs dropping into the battle. It's just so dramatic and exciting mm. and it looks incredible. And... It's, there's just always so much going on it always feels so like busy and exciting and it feels like you can always get cool things done as a player you can always if you don't have a mech you can go and ruin someone's good time you just there's just there's just always something good for you to be doing combined with this amazing movement and the wall running and that sort of stuff and then mm. the mech is like the cherry on top basically mm. so that combination was just really strong it obviously deserved to have more of a multiplayer tail than it did um it lives on a pc a little bit but it's otherwise didn't didn't quite happen which is a bit of a shame but really cool for what it was and that campaign was massively hyped but it really did live up to the hype mm. and i think it also i think like there was maybe uh 
it felt like a slight pushback on where first person shooter campaigns had gone at this time too there just wasn't it got, it died out as a concern and then this year feels like the year where it comes back a little bit more and mm. this is this is showing people no you know you don't have to fight humans for a first person shooter to be exciting just because call of duty campaigns have gotten more and more stale it doesn't mean that that's the only way you can do it and this is like uh yeah i think this is part of that that movement and now i think we're first person shooters that have a single player component are actually bigger than they have they were six or seven years ago at this time so mm. that's cool so that, yeah an important game i think matthew um in a lot of ways and the ultimate someone picks it up on ea game pass or whatever and then plays it and then they're like oh i didn't realize this game was this good so yeah yeah, yeah. Titanfall too any thoughts my little confession is that i I've, i feel uh, i'm too cowardly to be at the mech in the fights I feel like it's all eyes on the mech. I feel like there's too much pressure to be good when you've got the mech. I'm much, I'm much more at ease when I'm a person in the fights. That's my big time for take. <laughs> yeah, I kind of get it. I think you do feel a bit of pressure, I think, for sure, when it turns up. I think you're like, oh, well, now I have to really perform. And then if you fuck it up and you're just on fire and exploding like, That's straight it. away. It just turns up and everyone's like, well, there's someone who doesn't know how to like be a mech. <laughs> you know, you've spent all these years learning to be a human. To actually be a mech's a very different thing. But you're right, it's kind of amazing that they managed to make this work at all, to have something which is behaves so differently and is so much more powerful, just so much physically bigger in those matches and for it to still make sense and it's just so inherently cinematic, it feels like something you'd have to like script and, and have very firm control over for it to work, but that it can happen in in the arena, I think is is it is amazing. I just um yeah, wish I was a little a little more comfortable having people rain rockets down on me. Um, <laughs> like I just almost I almost won't bring in the mech just out because I don't to preempt like the embarrassment of like losing ten seconds later. <laughs> I won't give you the pleasure of destroying my powerful mech. I, I see I see what you mean, and it's it does <laughs> yeah. It, I don't I I can't really work out why it didn't become big other than maybe like it was just a hard era to like make a new first person shooter happen multiplayer shooter happen i don't know but mm. people really i guess like overwatch happened at the same time right so maybe that just squashed this game and maybe its art style was more appealing to people than the sort of like more you know sort of hard sci-fi mechy stuff here i mean obviously like they would borrow back from overwatch 2 and how they made apex legends and designed those characters and well, yeah i don't know yeah just the idea I, of ea putting this out and battlefield one it, it, like you it's a, you're lucky if you can make one of these games work. The idea of having two competing things in the same space just does seems very dumb to me. Yeah, I don't know why they did that. That's I think everyone at the time was pointed that out as well. It's like just put <laughs> these six months apart. Like, what would happen if they released Titanfall two in the early part of the next year? It might have been a different deal. So yeah, I don't know. A weird one, but um, yeah, certainly to me, it feels like the the standout. Uh, well, one of the standout shooters of this year, but. Certainly one, yeah, it gelled with me more than Battlefield 1 did for sure. What's your number seven, Matthew? My number seven is The Witness. Nice, not on my list. Obviously, Jonathan Blow's open world puzzle game where you walk around an island interacting with electronic panels, each of which is controlled by, you sort of steer a line through a 2D grid to complete a pattern. And the game is about working out the rules of the grids and like what each grid is asking you and there are different bits of the island and different clusters of puzzles that kind of group around certain rules sometimes it's very obvious like the evolution of one panel to the next you know you're seeing 
the kind of puzzle growing complexity in a very clear way sometimes they're a lot more abstract and you're trying to extract the rules from like the world around you or it's indicating something to you in a very clever way and i guess it's just about well i'm not even gonna i'm not even gonna take a pun that what it's about i will say there's a lot of wanky stuff that i don't like about the witness um by which i mean stuff i don't understand and we always feel what you don't understand so i call it wanky it probably is very profound but i love that process of naturally gleaning what's being asked of you in each puzzle mechanic i think that's really really smart and you know very famously with this game there is a layer to it kind of beyond that obvious puzzle interaction which when you tap into it you realize there's there's sort of two games happening at once and that second game and the way it uses the world and makes you think about the world uh, is more satisfying to me than than the basic panel stuff and yeah this was just a a really beautiful place i spent loads of time just noodling away and chipping away and working little things out makes you feel really clever when you have these breakthroughs like i said there's something else to it that i don't really understand like there's bits where there's like you watch like a weird documentary or you hear like some strange essay being read out and that was a little bit too much for me I, i can appreciate enough of the cleverness to to, to enjoy this game yeah i sort of i had a go at this and i felt like i was like one of the dumbass apes at the start of 2001 of space odyssey like the ones <laughs> who are like not on the evolutionary who are like done for basically um, <laughs> evolutionary speaking i was like impressed by like the the scope with which it was realized like you look at this vast kind of like you know island landmass location and think okay there's loads of moving parts here so it's obviously there is like a meta element to this but did just seem to be solving a load of old mazes and people just losing their minds going holy (laughs) shit Um, yeah i mean that's also true (laughs) yeah i mean like that's the thing i'm again i know that uh, that's too reductive i only played for like an hour and i just i was completely i was like nah i just don't really fancy solving mazes for like 10 hours or whatever so but, you know, a lot of clever clogs in the office, Matthew, seem to be like, whoa, this game. So I probably just missed it, you know. That, that's the slightly annoying thing about being a fan of this game is it, it feels like you're trying to make a statement about yourself by liking it. And I'm, right, I'm yeah. trying to reinforce that that isn't the case. Like, there's loads of stuff in this. I was like, I don't get that. I hate that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that was my relationship with that. But I feel like there was enough, like, instantly rewarding, tangible stuff like quite spectacular puzzle solving like the hidden layer of this is when you see what he's up to on this island and how he's hiding other stuff there it's quite audacious to hide these big things in in plain sight you start solving extra embedded puzzles and solutions to them they're visually so big on screen that you feel like how does everyone not see this i I like the wizardry of that the, the kind of rubbing it in your face element of it i think is is actually quite playful oh, okay yeah interesting i just read about what what the kind of a lot of it's building up to which is a completely reductive way to appreciate this game right but, uh, i can see why that would leave a bit of an impact so uh yeah i think i think a lot of this as well it's like sometimes if i could not read the tweets of the person who made something i would probably just like go into it without any preconceptions you know what i mean there's a bit of that sometimes i think that goes yeah, along with like I, modern art but yeah yeah i don't buy into it being like this is the way things should be or this guy understands these things in a way no one else does yeah that was a hurdle i had to get over to enjoy it but i did right fair enough yeah fair enough like uh yeah i wouldn't rule out going back to it one day i bet like it's a good steam deck game for example that would seem mm. like a spot on place for that uh simple but pretty art style like you say 
Okay, interesting. So uh, we come to my number seven, which is your number eight. This is very different to The Witness. <laughs> yeah, so Final Fantasy fifteen. Matthew, why don't you talk about why you like this? Because I feel like I've I've talked about it a lot on the uh, on pods we've done. I think we like it for quite similar reasons. I think this game's kind of like a big mess, and part of that's tied to like knowing what a mess the development was, and I think a lot of that's quite obvious. Very much game of two halves. This open world adventure where you're driving around with with your mates in this car and then this strange rush to the finish line where it becomes super linear in a way which just feels like a team had to get a game finished rather than it's necessarily what they wanted to do but i think it's one of those classic seven out of tens where while the whole is a bit all over the place i think there's a lot of humanity and charm in this group of four i really like spending time with these 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 guys as we're potting around doing so-so combat with an absolutely killer battle theme which makes you think you're having a better time than you probably are but also the madness of like how detailed certain things are or where the time went in this game the fact that they've modeled all these intricate dishes that one member of your party cooks for you whenever you camp i think it's really delightful like the actual kind of world design of all the different towns and locations you go to you know very beautiful places even though there's often not much to do there really it's 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 no more complicated than AAA game making where i think you can sense a lot of like bad decisions in it but you can also sense like a lot of love and care and attention's gone into it i think you can really sense the team behind it and their intent in that and that really resonates with me i just think it's a good story about guys going on adventures together and male friendship and having a good time with the lads <laughs> yeah i thought this was a bit of a tonic at the end of the year to be honest because it was like i don't know i think that why I, I just found this as a as a tonal contrast to other games just spot on it was it was sort of like in when I heard the battle music, I was like, "This feels like Final Fantasy." I'm comforted by this, mm. but also it's just it starts with the four boys and their broken car, right? And that's like, and it sets the tone of, you know, that's that's what this game is really about. It's not really about what the wider threat is, which you won't understand anyway because there's not enough cutscenes or context about <laughs> right. what's actually going on. Um, so all you really have to get invested in is like what's going on with these lads because the wider story doesn't actually make sense to you, <laughs> right? <laughs> But that's okay because that is very easy to track, and you know the way that story is told through, you know, like how f- the photos that are taken by, you know, it, 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 it prompto takes the characters' yeah. Uh, photos, yeah, um, and like, all, and then like the way that the different characters remark on how they look in them or experiences they had or that sort of thing. That's how the story is really delivered more than cutscenes and things like that. And it's just so inventive and characterful, and just gives all these characters their moment and it just really makes you buy into that friendship. So I think mm. even when this game gets really baffling in its second half and you are the moment that you are dragged along with this wider story that you're not really tuned into because like when you get to the the very end of the game where there is spoiler alert a time jump and you just and it is really about like these four guys returning to where they started years later and it just it just it that part lands even if the rest of it is completely confusing. So mm. Yeah, a real, like you say, a real muddled old game. But, you know, I just... Uh, that first open world is, like, still one of my favourite open worlds, though. It's just the weird way the landmass looked, like the bits of, like, strange outcropping of rocks and crystals and things like yeah, that. Like, there was it, a really distinctive, like, silhouette to the landscape, you know what I mean? It's quite a tough open world to, like, navigate. Like, there's lots of, like, irritating fences and blockages where I think a team with a bit more experience wouldn't put those in. Like, I definitely found 
the more open bits of Final Fantasy 16 a little easier to like navigate. Because I think Final Fantasy 15 is like quite an irritating game to play still, which kind yeah. of undermines some of some of that freedom. But I don't know. I think probably if you add it all up, I maybe prefer it to 16. Yeah, I can like, sort of see why. Like it's so sixteen. Because... It's it's literally the opposite. You know, six sixteen is the game which makes total sense, and that's its strength. But right. it's also it doesn't feel like there's much to it. Where here, like there is quite a lot of elements to it. I think it feels more like an RPG. There are just more systems and distractions for you. And I just wish it made sense because it is it is a bummer when you get into that. It's maybe like the last third. And you're just like, eh, what's happening? Who are these guys? Like, people turn up for, you know, they look cool. The art design's always amazing, Final Fantasies, but these sort of boss characters turn up and you have no idea who they are, where, like, every one of those encounters in 16 is really clearly kind of led up to and sold. It's a weird one, because I think 16 traps you into doing the side content it does have, which is one of its weaknesses. It's like, well, yeah, actually, you have to do these side quests, and it's not fun. Whereas I don't think 15 actually traps you into really doing anything. There's mm. a lot of stuff you can go out and find. But I think a lot of what the open world gives you is actually content you can discover optionally once you've completed the main story. And you have the option to kind of time travel back using your dog to um, <laughs> to an earlier point in time, which is basically giving you access to the open world again. Again, very confusing story there. Um, but I think like you have sixteen's pace so you you are meant to do side content as part of the main game really and 15 just it not all of it is made equal by any means and some of it is like just fetch quest kind of nonsense but there are also like cool hunts out there there are also these kind of like weird dungeons that like there are red lights on the dungeons at night which makes them seem quite spooky and kind of horrory which is really cool and those dungeons like you know how the combat is pretty pretty shallow but you know that to as to explore his spaces and to find out what's in there is still a cool element of this game i think and mm. yeah i don't know i think it's i think it's got a, like a lot to like about it i think some people just wrote it off because they were like it doesn't feel like old final fantasy but it doesn't actually it's not a best in class action game either but i don't know i think i think there's some of its parts actually like you know it's it's actually look i think it's got a lot to offer and i i i reflect on it fondly it's a it's, a, yeah. it's probably a heart pick more than anything else on my uh, list yeah for actually. sure yeah but I don't know. It was cool. It was just. It was exactly what I wanted it to be and what I needed to be. Just the the second half's like jumble of events. Like you're looking at like a big weird sort of like frozen Shiva head and at nighttime, and it's quite spooky and strange. Then there's Ignis gets blinded for some reason at some point. Then one of them falls off a train, and like <laughs> it's just it just an absolute garble of random stuff. Then there's like a massive battle with uh, Leviathan in that in that city that looks like Venice. Just it just feels like lots of like moments that they just couldn't uh, string a, together coherently. Wedding dress designed by fucking Vivian Westwood or someone. <laughs> yeah, just a weird what an, game. <laughs> weird omni game. Just like just tries to do everything at once, but they didn't have the time to really like execute it to the standard it needed to be. But yeah, like I say, still one of my favorite open worlds. Just to just to be in, just to be in and hang out. It's one of the best hangs of any game, really. So, yeah, FF15 deserves to be celebrated, and there it is. Number seven for me, number eight for you. 
What's your number six, Matthew? My number six is Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney Spirit of Justice. Of course. Soon to be re-released as part of the Apollo Justice trilogy. That's kind of overselling the role of Apollo Justice. It's a bit weird that the second trilogy of Ace Attorney games are meant to be about Apollo Justice, but they kind of lose all faith in him after Apollo Justice and just bring back Phoenix Wright, who's the main character, and Apollo Justice is just there on the side. It's like ostensibly the story's about a family connection with him, but to claim that he's the main event is preposterous i i don't think this is the the best ace attorney outside of the shu takumi games best cases best music best scenarios the court case mechanic in this one is that you've gone to this uh, foreign kingdom of kurain where the sort of spirit channeling comes from that you see in the rest of the games uh, and in their trials they're dictated by these divination seances where you see the crime through the eyes of the victim in their dying moments and they use that as evidence and a big part of these cases is you watch these first person reenactments of of the deaths you have to check for like what they can hear see smell and feel and try and find contradictions to show how murders have been, have been sort of falsified in some way uh, you know and that's alongside the traditional ace attorney stuff of like calling out contradictions using the evidence shouting a lot and asking questions so it's got all the cool ace attorney stuff but i actually think the gimmick in this one is much more effective than the the weird emotional heart scope or whatever it was that they did in dual destinies which 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 actually does return in this i was a little bit down on the on the idea of like the phoenix right gang go on holiday to a different place but that really like ups the drama they go to a place where hilariously if the client is found guilty their lawyer is also put to death which is absolutely (laughs) preposterous but like add some genuine stakes to the game (laughs) that's that's quite a good hook for for this kind of preposterous world um we should do that in games court (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) you die they die um hard to pin down exactly what what it is about the cases that are better i just think the the team had really settled into it the nature of the mysteries like they're a little bit more twisty turny than shutakumi's like shutakumi's mysteries are a little bit more sort of straightforward a little bit more western this team they they're a little a lean a little closer to the kind of like gimmickry of the kind of impossible japanese crime authors which is probably why it resonates with me um i also really like the dlc for this which is a big time travel case where it looks like someone has traveled through time and can that be true is it not you know picking that apart is really good fun absolute doozy of a final case as well like really really strong ending yeah yeah um it sort of feels like there's always felt to me like the second trilogy just never quite had the same like level of conversation around it as the first trilogy did and that might just be because there were a lot of them at once in the west and then the latter two games obviously only came to 3ds as digi downloads so it felt like it was like an only real heads no with spirit of justice yeah. um element but maybe that'll change with the re-release Matthew. yeah i yeah. remember at the time people being a bit sniffy that it was like digital only but you're like you know true fans to shut the fuck up and play it you know <laughs> and at least they did re-release it like it was you know there were games in this series that were not being released here so it's you know at least it did get that that uh, at least it got a spin in the west so that's mm, good for sure
Okay, my number six is Doom 2016, otherwise it's known as Doom. So, for a long time there was there were rumours of a, a Doom 4, and there was a Doom 4 they tried to make and then gave up um, and then axed it and then started again. And I don't know how confident people were in Doom 2016 until they saw it in action in 2015 and realised how much of the sort of like spirit of like I guess like heavy metal kind of like vibes of Doom they'd captured in the way it like looked and sounded with this real like physical element of like mashing through enemies to get like health and ammo and almost this Resi 4 like dynamic of you know you shoot an enemy until you've kind of they're weakened and then you get the moment to fit to to come you know to do the finisher the lovely animation plays out and then like the battle keeps going and you are powered up by doing those finishers and mm. it was a really cool dynamic they happened across while also tapping into the old iconography of of doom as this sort of like you know sci-fi sort of horror-y but heavy metal album cover you know sort of like visual style so they really synthesized those things nicely and then merged it with great guns that you could like modify and improve the way that they they behaved in the game and like really just really really strong level design that wasn't super linear that was you know they were not like mazes in the way that old doom levels were but they were certainly like they were they were proper spaces you had to actually navigate and figure out and had secrets in them and things like that and it was a really strong like i say like i I know there was a multiplayer element to this game i have no idea what the multiplayer was like i no notion of people really playing it but that was the thing that the single player was so good that that was what people talked about and that was the thing that captured people's imaginations and it was just the guns just felt so good like they just had you could just modify like a rocket launcher to fire loads of little rockets and you suddenly felt like iron man and it was just it really just like a, a great arsenal fantastic e- chunky enemies you could just like enjoy ripping apart and yeah just so much momentum to the campaign yeah, yeah. Doom, doom eternal would take it even even further with how athletic you could be and you know just how how exciting the set pieces were mm. this was just it felt like single player ps games were back at this point matthew thoughts that thing about like the momentum and after years and years of like shooters becoming more about like pre- precise military endeavors you know yeah. it's all about like the, the single sort of snipe of the head or whatever to have something which really rewarded and found a way to reward always pushing forwards and like making you play aggressively like it's a very successful game at like drawing you into its rhythms which is like part of the challenge with a lot of these things is like you can build a game but it's like can you make someone kind of like really connect with the way it's meant to be played to actually get the most out of it but i think here you soon learn that trying to play it a bit more carefully just won't work it really was it was just everything you wanted it just yeah. it was fast it was like you say there's no there's no cover no piddly cover stuff it was just like yeah just get in there constantly be circling enemies constantly using your physical you know physical physically getting out of the way of stuff but be, you have to be up close in their face mm. and things like that and just being like set pieces being these like vast things you need to dismantle while you keep moving and then just at the end of it being like yep that felt good and they were just like you know there are monster guts everywhere kind of thing um Mm. uh, yeah just yeah great just really really good so yeah i can see why doom eternal would overpower a little bit it's and so i think some people prefer this i personally just think it's like an it's a new evolution of like the first person shooter that was much needed and both were very successful and then doom eternal just pushed a bit more in the kind of like different ideas that doom 2016 brought to that that flavor and you either like that more or you didn't i think yeah, so uh, yeah. yeah but worked really well um so yeah great game well done everyone involved what's your yes. number five matthew my number five is uncharted four higher on my list okay 
My number five. I wonder if this is on your list. Inside. Is this on your list? Higher on my list. <gasps> Excellent. So what's your number four? Number four. Shadow Tactics. Blades of the Shogun. Not on my list. Uh, this is Me, Me, Me Games' uh, real-time tactics game. I don't think it's their first game, but I think it's the first game of this sort. This was a team that basically took the the kind of style of game that you used to see in Commandos and Desperados, those sort of isometric stealth games where you controlled a squad of people, big view cones, trying to get people to coordinate attacks, playing them very, very carefully, often quick saving and quick loading a lot. Maps that you'd spend hours meticulously clearing out i just think they did a brilliant job of updating it for like the modern appetite i think visually they're they're really gorgeous this one particularly with this like feudal japan is is a really beautiful thing to behold it has a really great interface which lets you just like have total command of the situation like really the the art of these games is there's always enemies but like if you have enough information about like what they can see and what they can hear and how your moves will interact with that and affect that i think that's where you begin to start plotting out these really intricate schemes to take everyone down and one of the best games out there at conveying the information of a situation making sure you really understand like the rules and behaviors of how what everything's going to do and i often think of it more like i often say like they should make a heist game or a Mission Impossible game because for me it taps into the same satisfaction of seeing a well-oiled team doing all this cool stuff in tandem. You have a squad of different ninjas all with very different abilities so like the roles they play in different maps and how you can use them together is really interesting. You've kind of got like a jack-of-all-trades ninja, you've got a strong man who can kill multiple people at once, carry multiple bodies, you have a kind of distraction trapper who can lure people over to their traps, you have a person uh, trained in disguises so there's like a social stealth element and then you have a sniper who's basically this really old geezer who you, in a lot of the maps there'll be a very high tower and he's, he's I think he's maybe got like one leg or something there's, there's some gimmick about him that when he walks like something makes a lot of noise maybe it's his wooden leg so actually you just tend to kind of stick him up in a tower and he can snipe people but you can do this thing where you sort of slow down time and program in multiple moves to then trigger so you can set people to kind of attack a squad all at once so that no one character no enemy sees another enemy gets picked off because they're all killed at the same time absolutely brilliant i think it's a formula that they've only gotten better at i think desperados 3 was better than than um shadow tactics I think their new one, Shadow Gambit, I haven't been able to play a huge amount of it yet, but it's just so polished, so accomplished. Um, but it, for this team, it all starts here. Like they, they nail most of the formula here, and most of what's going to be really great about their games is, is aced here. The, the only thing I, I, I'm not wild about is in this game, when you go into that planning mode, time doesn't fully stop. The enemies are still moving a little bit, which is just a little bit too much time pressure and sort of variation for, for those plans to always work out as you'd hope, where in Desperados, time freezes, it's very kind of clear-cut. That's a very minor, minor complaint with a game, which I think is, like, just one of the best of its kind. Yeah, that's uh, this felt like the year that these ty- this people started taking notice of this studio, Matthew. Yeah. Um, and that this game was a bit of a breakout in that respect. Like, a bit of a, a slow burn um, success, I think. Like, I think yeah, a lot of people... I, I came to it, like, I didn't come to it this year for like i remember ignoring this for a long time 
Yeah, and I think that it's sort of like it, it snowballed as people got it in like humble bundles or free on Epic and stuff like that. And yeah, they've gradually accumulated this reputation. So yeah, looking forward to the new one for sure. Mm. Uh, I remember Phil Savage making a big deal about this and fighting to get into our like top one hundred list and stuff. Yeah, like I that. think and actually that's why I played it was was it being championed specifically in PC Gamer. So that that was probably Phil's yeah, enthusiasm for it. It really like does just takes that. Like, I'm not going to say like oh it fixes that old genre, but it took everything you liked about it and just makes it so much more like accessible and polished. And through that, like more difficult, like it's it's like a perfect example of taking an older thing and applying like new thinking to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I should yeah. I, this is one of the games of theirs I do own and should play at some point. But I feel like I'm probably just going to play the new one now and see yeah, what, how I just yeah but. just. I don't know. I prefer Cowboys to Ninjas. It's probably yeah. part of the Desperados thing for me. But <laughs> That's completely fair. Uh, but yeah, yeah, good to have it high on the list. It feels like yeah, we've covered a good spread between us here. Like it's, We haven't had that much crossover so far, Ooh. really, which is a bit weird. But I thought we'd have more. But um, such as it is. So my number four, Matthew? Yeah. It's Deus Ex Mankind Divided. So, Not in my top ten. Right, exactly. So, long time coming, this game. I think it was meant to come out in 2015. It was a five-year wait between this and the last one, Human Revolution. Human Revolution came came out and, I think, um, captured enough of what the original Deus Ex did so well that people were, were really pumped about, about you know, Immersive Sims again. It was like a, a success. I don't think it was like a blockbuster, but I think it was like a, a two or three million level success. So enough of them to justify uh, keep investing in it there was a really confident and, and complete version of the type of game they set out to make you could you know play it uh, like in an action way you could play it stealthily and it would respect your choices and it was it was it was much easier to grasp i think how it worked systems wise than like dishonored was for example in 2012 which i think is a more complicated stealth game that requires more skill um the mm. deus ex was a little bit more binary you could figure it out i just think it you could work out the solution a lot a, a lot easier mankind divider comes along weird game it just sort of ends it doesn't really have a proper final act and the rumor was they were making two of these at once and then like the other one they were going to make um they stopped making because this one didn't sell well enough and the only conclusion to that is they shouldn't have greenlit two of them at once if they did that they should have just made this one game right you know, and then that it, terrible idea if they did that, and then they weren't going to weren't going to be sure if they'd even finish it. What a load of work wasted! But regardless of what happened there, this game is still really good on its own on its own terms. So it cuts for it's still set in a kind of like near future setting. But what's changed is is that Adam Jensen, it, the main character in the game, you you have these kind of augmentations because Adam was um, hideously injured at the start of uh, of uh, Human Revolution, and in this. This time in the Deus Ex timeline, basically people with augmentations are are being persecuted by people who don't have them. And that's, there's a kind of like a slightly, I guess, a path ID element to that to that story that I think a lot of people considered quite heavy handed when it came out. But I actually think the way it's investigated in the game and the way it's depicted in the game in subtle ways is quite nicely done. It's not like you're going down the street and people are shouting, Oi, Augie, get at the back of the bus kind of thing. It's not like that. It's a bit more like this stuff has already happened and when you get on the train and you have like looks from like you know like a woman and her child on the on the train it's just sort of implied by what's going on around you people are sort of like fetishized for it at the same time i think it's like quite quite nicely handled but there is also the kind of like the slightly dour prague you get to explore which i think really works as a space and some of the side quests they use to bring that to life work incredibly well so 
there's like a, a sort of like deadly drug you're investigating who's kind of like pushing that and it's kind of like a mystery for you to solve what what's happened there you learn more about adam jensen's past by catching up with david Saraf, who's a character from the first game that's one of the side quests there's like a someone has been killed and trying to figure out from the body like who who the murderer was and i'm picking that and um also just these like these weird adverts that you see in the in the world that have these glitches and you you unpick that as a side quest too and i actually think that accumulatively all of the side quests make it feel like quite a complete game you got about like 40 plus hours of stuff to to enjoy in there and to 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 uncover and it makes you feel like if they'd had like a cyberpunk level budget they actually could have made a 10 out of 10 game i think they had they had it in them but Mm. you know it it just it has some limitations but it holds up nicely and it's i think a lot of people are praising this in the wake of cyberpunk because some people feel like that game didn't give you enough choice and or enough outcomes or enough ways to approach the game i probably slightly prefer it to cyberpunk even though there's like a a spectacle element to cyberpunk that this game this game does not quite have but yeah cool game matthew did you ever play this one i think it's mechanically a much nicer game to play than cyberpunk a much better stealth experience one of the reasons i'm a bit down on cyberpunk is having played these deus ex games you're constantly thinking back to these and how well they did it and the, the tension of trying to play stealthily and how your powers enable that is way more satisfying it's just it's sort of sad what happened with this series and maybe this style of game in general but um we're lucky we got two really good versions of this absolutely so yeah and maybe overshadowed by another very similar type of game from this year uh what's your number three matthew my number three is inside okay let's do it inside have we ever talked about this game on the podcast i don't know yeah okay obviously play dead make these uh incredible 2d sort of cinematic platform puzzlers they feel like the sort of descendants of like another world in a way very artistic worlds very all done without dialogue all done through sort of like you know animation and art design it's all the stories kind of implied you have to interpret it but it's also got this very sort of wicked streak of black humor in that your characters can die very easily in this one you play a little boy who is making his way through a landscape seemingly trying to escape some captors it's never like properly explained what's going on with him and he encounters strange locations enemies and technologies on the way if if it has anything approaching a central mechanic it's maybe like mind control or that's that's the element which jumps out to me is that there are set pieces in this where you can control these sort of clone figures to solve puzzles where it requires lots of bodies so there there is something about sort of science and manipulation and becoming other things and experiments gone wrong which is kind of a a through line that's no better seen than in the, the sort of astonishing ending to this game where something happens i won't spoil it for people who haven't played it the few people who haven't played this but uh it introduces a thing which is just one of the most amazingly animated things i've ever seen where you know it it's you know it, it looks kind of like pre-rendered and predefined but actually it's very organic and the freedom of control you have shows that it's all happening for real so it's it's you know really an an astonishing game to like look at you know to see it unfold but you know at its heart it is just a, a you know a sort of simple puzzle platformer where you are constantly running into these fatal accidents it then restarts you back like 10 seconds or so and you take another go like it's 
it's kind of the sort of learning through doing i guess and sort of throwing yourself at a problem but the the kind of creativity of those solutions and the glee they take in you failing i i, th- I think just really speaks to me but this particular iteration of it jumps out just i think really ending is 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 one of the most sort of spectacular things i've seen in a game like really sticks with me and whenever you go back to it it's like every bit as impressive as you remember which is really cool what was what was your experience with this one there is a wild streak of perfectionism in this game i think like that you say the animation like you say really speaks to that Mm. um just like everything feels handcrafted and right and that's underlined even more by having played a few games since this was released um that do use similar storytelling techniques but don't nail it quite as well right um and i think this is just this is just perfect like you are you know a boy you are on the run you don't know why and then things just escalate and escalate and it's all told through like wordless you know story instances and Mm. you find you running between these like situations where what you have to do completely changes you might have to like stand in a uh, you know in a line perfectly and keep moving you know sort of like without without you know sort of like bumping into anyone and just you know being unseen you know you might be running away from dogs you might be you know sort of like under threat from some underwater monster of some kind like it just you're sort of stumbling between yeah these dangerous situations and it's just it's just blowing your mind as a player how amazingly rendered these these Mm. you know these scenarios are and just like how wild and weird the story ultimately ends up being and how it plays out in front of you and i think that that sort of shock it gives you is what just made me think at the time like wow what an amazing work this is this is like this is singular and you just can't you can't replicate its success it's like everything they sort of like wanted to do in limbo just pushed f- so much further forward yeah and just yeah. wild and extraordinary just uh, fucking so yeah like one of the most like some of the best world building you've ever experienced in a game and it's happening in a way that you just don't really see you don't see presentationally games doing this. There's nothing else like around doing this at the time. Just what you can do with a 2D, you know, 2D plane essentially in the way that 3D graphics intersect with that. Just yeah, perfect. It's like it's a it's a perfect form of a specific type of video game storytelling, you know. Um, and that's what it left me with. You're absolutely right as well about when other people have done this, it can go like very wrong. I don't know. Did you play Somerville? I played a, yeah, I played a bit of it. I thought it looked looked and sounded incredible, but wasn't quite as good. Just felt like it hadn't had that extra like two years of constant iteration that this had. This doesn't have rough edges. Yeah. Like this is just you know, play tested and play tested and play tested that that everything behaves exactly as it should. There's no you know, that some of it like you can just get very lost, very confused easily. Things kind of fuck up or there are like weird bugs or like animation things where it doesn't quite work out. It it's like almost there, but like that final five percent probably takes years and years to kind of get over. Yeah, what you cut and what you keep. I think some of it would with a couple more years would have been shorter and yeah and maybe like the pot the mechanics would have been slightly more polished and it would have got to that same level but um mm. yeah because obviously it shares um this one of the same creators doesn't it so yeah it, yeah there's just something about this it just oh well yeah just absolutely took my breath away it's like a proper like thump in the stomach of a game <laughs> yeah yeah real real good so yeah what, what was that um in your list your number three matthew that was my number three yeah, I did consider having it higher. It was, yeah, it it really and it really did catch fire, despite the fact it was just on Xbox and PC, right? It wasn't on 
PlayStation for quite a while, I think. Yeah, um, I mean, when they showed it on Xbox like years before it eventually came out, and so there was a lot of anticipation for like this crazy thing. Obviously, Inside had, uh, obviously, Limbo like had such cred that if, you know there was this like natural faith in it. But yeah, you know, I can remember playing this first on the team, and then being you know you just come in and say like whatever you do, like you just have to play this thing and get to the end of it. Yeah. Like, this is just that something like unreal happens and it will not disappoint you it now feels like there's been a few years since the game's come along like that where it's been like you have to see what x is um yeah before someone's what's the it last time that mm. yeah i don't know but it feels like maybe it happened with indie games around this time slightly more than it happens than than it does now but yeah just like yeah. i don't know just because you would never predict this ending like you can have a hundred years to figure out what what <laughs> have a guess at what the ending is and no one would no one would figure out knowing the premise of the game no one would figure it out at all yeah. it's just so much wilder and weirder and how it's brought to life is just like what the fuck is that um, yeah. <laughs> incredible all right so my number three matthew we've got hitman 2016 here is this in your list higher oh okay interesting interesting well that's okay cool so um we come to your number two my number two dishonored two <gasps> higher on my list oh what a mess <laughs> <laughs> wow okay interesting you've hit hitman above dishonored two okay interesting that's exciting so we come to my number two right yes okay so we only have three games left to discuss then that happened very quickly didn't it yes. um Okay, my number two is Uncharted 4. That was number five. Right, this comes along, and I'm not really tuned into PlayStation at the time. I know that this will be a big deal to me. I did feel like Uncharted has sort of run its course with one, two, and three. I was like, well, three had some nice ideas that two didn't have, um, and you some other bits. You've killed Helen Mirren. You've had your fun. <laughs> well, it did feel like there was nothing left to say about Drake, and they like resolved the... You know, his whole... You kind of knew what his origin was and you knew where... <laughs> or where did life... you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. And you kind of knew... What, it wrapped up his relationship with Sully, seemingly. And then Uncharted 4 suggests there's much more of that story to be told. And I sort of, like, actually left it three months before it before I played it. I was like... I, I was sort of... I knew it was a big deal coming to PlayStation. I was a bit down on the fact that there was an Amy Hennig version of this that got scrapped, where they had the actor Todd Stashwick playing Nathan Drake's brother rather than Troy Baker, as they did in the finished game. And the villain was going to be played by um, Alan Tudyk from Firefly. I don't know who was going to play... I don't know who did eventually play the villain, actually. I'm not sure who that actor is. But... Um, so there's a version that was like scorched. We never saw it. And then uh, there was a new version helmed by Neil Druckmann that came along. So it was a little bit like, well, you know, I kind of felt in my head that Amy Hedick had earned the right to to continue telling the story of her character. So I had a, a slight chip on my shoulder about that. Mm. When I played it, I was completely amazed by the generational leap in what Naughty Dog was achieving in terms of how it looked and sounded, but also that they it seemed like they had finally gotten good at gameplay or like I, that's not fair they became like best in class at, at third person shooting and all of the different aspects of uncharted in a way that i don't think the first three uncharted games ever quite were yeah i think that's fair yeah yeah at the same time the story telling in the game was just so so sharp the i think like the however you feel about the background they establish of drake having a brother and then encountering that brother again and the kind of like adventure they get into the way it kind of like draws out the one more adventure is maybe an adventure too far element in this game is is so much better than what the indiana jones movies are able to achieve with the same thing that question of 
what will it cost you to take one more adventure? Are you sure you can survive it? The way this game asks that question, I think, works incredibly well. And then just adds up to a series best, you know, like array of set pieces and environments that you actually get to explore this time. Mm. I think, like, actually, it took me playing this, Matthew, with uh, my ex and just being like, seeing her play one, two, and three, and then seeing her play four and being like, oh, you actually really notice the quality leap between you know one two or three and then when you get to four like it's just the it's the it's the modern platonic ideal of what an uncharted game is right they just they achieved it they really got there definitely bringing more sort of stealth or viable stealth into the combat sort of sandbox and having slightly more open sandboxy areas feels like you know taking the kind of systems approach of the last of us and applying it to this and it just makes it feel richer without like slowing it down it's it's still a very sort of cinematic version of stealth and it feels like it's designed to be sort of stealth until it ain't and then that's fine because there's like you're in you're in a gunfight iconic giant set pieces amazing visuals on all those different global locations and it's a really good like world hopping adventure you know for all the madness of like the collapsing clock tower and then being dragged by the jeep you know that that it can also then just take a beat to have you kind of swimming around some tropical islands with practically no enemies if any enemies and just having this big environmental beauty moment in you know for half an hour i think is it's just a, co- a team that's just so confident in their abilities. When I replayed it, I wasn't as into the final quarter of the game. Right. I think it gets a little bit like gunfight in pirate settlements. A, f- a few too many of those. The stuff I really love about it, like the the, more, the the greater variety of locations happens in the first two thirds of the game. That's nitpicking. The final boss is a bit blur, but isn't that always the case in these games? Um, yeah. And and maybe there's a little bit too much Pat the Ox, but <laughs> if this is the last one, you want to be able to take your the victory lap, and they they definitely do that. I think I think I largely agree with that. I think the pirate ship stuff on a second playthrough does stand out as like it gets a bit too irritating. Some of the firefights, you're dying slightly too often, and you're like, okay, I'm ready for this to end. Mm. Um, and yeah, that that duel with the final boss is just is a tough hang. Um, apart from the fact that he is, it is a dude losing his shit. How improbable all the adventures you've been on are. That's my yeah, favorite that's bit funny. of that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Funny. It's just like he's just like, I can't believe that you, this like basically like orphan lad, have di- have gone and done all this, and it's driving me like a a rich insane guy completely mad. Um, and yeah. I, I liked all that, and I like the fact that it does it does lead you into thinking Drake's not going to survive. It gets close enough that you're like, oh fuck, maybe this is like maybe he is going to pay the price. Right, here. right. But also manages to avoid like the scold wife stereotype that you get in so many of these kinds of stories. You know, where like it's the dude getting back into it, but the wife's like, oh, I'm not so sure because she is kind of like that, but she also joins the adventure and yeah. and it just doesn't fall into that stereotype. So. Yeah, really nicely done. Yeah. Um, the, the the transition at the start where you have the diving level and you think he's diving for some ancient treasure and then it you realise that he's just like clearing shit out from like the river <laughs> and then like the you get lifted up on that lift and you realise that you're just in like an American city and you're not in some tropical land. Like that is just that's like a world class bit of like character development like reveal of what his whole deal is now and like the the sort of setup for the game like you know in indiana jones i like old indiana jones would have killed for that kind of transition i think 
yeah exactly it just there's nothing like that really in either of the last two indiana jones films so nothing that yeah it's it really nicely done and yeah i i actually i keep saving because i know that there's a 60 fps version of this on ps5 right i've been yeah. keeping that in my back pocket because i know that'll be a treat for the eyes at some point yeah, so yeah yeah oh it's yeah. real good yeah absolutely so yeah huge huge fan of this game and yeah it's uh, it turns out naughty dog on ps4 you know two absolutely blinding games really um fewer many fewer games but the ones they did make were incredible and uh yeah i guess a shout out to the um the rope they added uh the climbing um grappling hook matthew <laughs> just like really that was the thing is like they they actually didn't overdo it with what they added mechanically to to what drake could do in this game but they added just enough for it to like keep the, you stimulated and for it to feel different you know the fact that when you're climbing you have like like direct control over his hand and like the animation where his hand kind of reaches out to find the next grip is like it's still kind of like press forward to climb but yeah it just it just has that extra little kind of next gen touch that makes you feel oh you know a bit more in control it's it's very elegantly done absolutely so okay slightly confused here so we come to your number one or wait is it my yeah that's right it's your number one we come to now so your well, number basically, one is... what do you want to discuss first? Hitman <laughs> or Dishonored 2? <laughs> uh, the order of the podcast is Hitman, so let's talk about Hitman. Okay, I picked Hit- Hitman as my number one. Maybe this is, you know, maybe I'm bundling in like later Hitman and, and what this whole project means to me, but I do think they nail so much of it in this first entry. Like, this is just a game which, of, of all the games on the list, this is the one which has been with me the whole time like that I still play now and I feel like maybe at the time I might have said Dishonored 2 was my favorite game of the year but I, I think this has had the sort of the longevity that I've really loved for people who who weren't there back then uh they obviously released this episodically as different levels at time that actually really I think is a really key part of its appeal and, and why it worked for me because you were left with like a level and you had a month to kind of get to grips with it and this is a game which really rewards replaying the levels. There's a big challenge system where completing, you know, tens, if not hundreds of tasks within a level kind of earns XP, which then unlocks more weapons or other places uh, that you can like enter the level from or disguises or extra tricks, which in turn makes your assassination attempts even more elaborate so it really feeds into itself and i don't know if if they had just released this game as a big bunch of levels maybe you would have just played through all of them and gone huh a six level game that seems a bit stingy but the fact that they really left you to kind of stew in those levels i think gave us time to lock into what they were trying to do and i find this game's celebration and encouragement of mastery to be just one of the best examples of that in in any game took me back to the kind of relationship i i hadn't had with games since probably playing like goldeneye and perfect dark where back then you used to play things endlessly because they're the only thing you had and they had like time trial systems and the cheat modes and all that to try and get you to kind of really get to grips with it but here you have these levels which are you know genuinely play a thousand different ways based on how you approach them it helps that i also love the fiction of of hitman of being an assassin taking out these absolutely rancid bastards the very dark sense of humor the slightly 
hyper real element of the world where these levels are full of these slightly stereotypical people everything's a little bit like dialed up environmentally that's true it feels like being in like a film version of the real world like not like not fake and plasticky but the italian town is just the most beautiful sun-drenched italian town you can imagine the paris catwalk is just the trendiest looking thing you can imagine the hokkaido spa is the most luxurious place you can imagine like that stuff really really resonates with me like it's a properly escapist in a really exciting way and you know we talked about these games an awful lot i could point you to several hitman episodes to hear us sort of wax lyrical about them yeah it was it was more to see someone create something with so much scope for for replaying them that rewarded you for replaying them that let you find different things that had a world that was like deep and wide enough to sustain you for all those hundreds of hours i just think it's like one of the great gaming achievements of the last decade we've said it before i'd happily have endless new levels added to this and you know that all comes back to to them nailing so much of the magic here in in uh, Hitman 2016. Yeah, so I think that what stood out when we've done our rank level rankings is just like what a big deal it is for this first run to have Paris, Sapienza, and Hokkaido. Um, yeah, just three of the best locations in the what in the entire project in one in one place. In some ways, it feels like that's like maybe Square Enix mega bucks at work there. Um, and <laughs> the big th- the big thing what it felt like at the time was 2016 when they released them episodically it just wasn't being it wasn't being appreciated in real time in the way it deserved to be Mm. people were kind of like forensically taking each level apart bit by bit which you only do i think when they charge you for individual levels if they just had the whole lot of it at once much as we did with hitman 2 and 3 you would like consider the package more holistically and i Mm. think that that was what they lacked and it was a commercial you know i don't not maybe not a disaster but it was poor enough that square enix severed ties with io so it was a it was a rough fallout from this and it didn't work really as a Mm. as a model and it meant it would only really be appreciated for what it would achieve in retrospect you know it felt like by the time hitman 2 came along people were like understanding what the overall design of it was what the point of it was and Mm. it's much harder to sell that when you're like you've got one level but don't worry you can play the level over and over again it's better when you can have all the levels stew in them and then go back to them as you feel and then master them as you feel and like i think that it just made people think too much about what they were buying which i've said before i I honestly think without that just having paris i don't know if i'd have quite the same relationship with this just playing that level back then and like really stripping it of stuff kind of unlocked a unlocked a, a play style in my head which i've now applied to the rest of the series Hmm. and it's impossible to say because it is the situation we found ourselves in and it is how we played it and i definitely take your point about like for for a wider audience what that meant and and the worry there but um i really like the episodic nature of it i think that is that is part of part of this season's magic yeah okay that's fair um it, it, it was certainly interesting and like it did get you to appreciate i suppose it got you to think about each level in a lot of detail yeah, I think that I, I think this is because for me the true pleasure of it was un, was enjoying what the fruits of Hitman 2016 inside Hitman 2, which is they only get stronger, you know. Yeah, um, it just it only gets stronger as an overall project. Like it, yeah, as you see it accumulate, it's just like wow, this is a, yeah. a, a, a fat array of stuff and if, you know hundreds of hours of game potentially. 
If if episode one was like Colorado, maybe we're not. Maybe we haven't done three podcasts about Hitman. <laughs> With a fourth to come on the old games, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I, but yeah, I think it's regardless of how it played out at the time, it's just yeah, it's obviously one of the the year's best games, and just yeah, just the, the perfect form of of what you want. And if you appreciate things like great level design and you know environmental art and things like that there really is like no better series to appreciate it's just one unbelievable array of places it takes you to and fun and darkly comic possibilities that play out you know to go from absolution which was just such a miss in so many ways to this to clarify your thoughts and like rediscover what 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 was really great there and it's it's kind of amazing really yeah absolutely so yeah it's sort of um it's been appreciated now at least you know it's been acknowledged now that hitman was this was the this was the peak they got there um and mm. uh yeah yeah despite a lot of hardship along the way hitman 2016 uh fucking hell yeah paris the first time you experience like that you know like the all of the different scripted events in paris it's just uh you're just like oh wow the the bar how high they set the bar presentationally it's just out of control really oh um, yeah. yeah it's when i pushed one target onto the target below and you were like Oh yeah, these guys know what they're doing. Yeah, it's when you go to that auction and you're like, "There's levels within the level," and then oh, like, like, yeah, you're exploring the gardens and you're finding what's going on out there, and there's a helicopter there, and you're like, "Wow, this is just like, <laughs> yeah, like you say, it's like a movie set version of real life." Um, <laughs> yeah, perfect stuff. Okay, last game of the podcast to discuss is my number one, Dishonored Two. Uh, well, a ten out of ten game in my opinion, just a a masterpiece. Like, took what. The original Dishonored did so well, which were basically assassination missions. You would have a target and you would take out the target as you saw fit. Dishonored did that for most of the game and then kind of became structurally kind of threw things off in the second half and became a bit more like something happens in the story and then you're sort of like playing a game in a more linear kill a bunch of enemies along a path sort of way it was it was still good but i think everyone kind of like looked at lady boyle's last party in the original dishonored and were like wouldn't it be cool if the entire game was just this Mm. and dishonored 2 was that game dishonored 2 was will take you to a bunch of high concept settings where you have a target and then you will, you will play the game as you wish to play it right down to you have two playable different playable characters with different abilities Emily Coldwin and Corvo and so you, yeah you, you, your relationship to the to the world would change based on which character you played and which set of abilities you had access to so more of a trad original dishonored one powers like uh, what you were kind of used to and uh emily's powers which are a bit stranger she have like tentacles and stuff Matthew. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah so actually i'm less familiar with emily's powers because i played through it as corvo but it was like the most polished version of what that that dream pitch was i think and you know everyone remembers like the environments of these games as like the kind of like stars of these games but then also there were other things that they would do to push the levels forwards conceptually so obviously a crack in the slab a game where you had the ability to switch between two different time frames and see the kind of cause and effect of that that was a an absolutely like blinding mission i think as you're playing this game you were like i cannot believe they've done this some of the environmental ideas in this and some of the larger concepts and sometimes just like taking you to a place and wowing you with the scale of it or the amount of locations you can kind of pick through and just the the you know that how the ways in which you could master this game were were truly extraordinary i think like one thing you could say that separates dishonored 2 from hitman 2016 or deus ex mankind divided which are like games that are in a similar sort of stealth action space i think that dishonored 2 allows you to perfect it in this like athletic 
mind-boggling speedrun type way that I don't think you could really, I don't think you could really play Hitman 2016 and Mankind Divided with the and have the same sort of extraordinary video results of like mad spider-man type shit that i saw people doing with dishonored 2 and i think that's right. because it puts a bit more power in your hands in terms of like how you resolve things and how the action plays out it's a bit less binary in the re- the results of what you would do i would say mm. that's a bit of a vague way of putting it but i think it's just it's just true it's just a bit more wide open consequence driven kind of game so Real good, Matthew. Dishonored two. How come it you it, it started just below Hitman for you in this I mean, list? Like there, it's it's a close thing. Like I said, at at the time, I probably would I probably would have said this was. I agree with you. It's a, it's a ten out of ten. But Hitman's also a ten for me. So it, it's as close as they can they come. Is uh, cracking the slab your favourite level? I think it's probably the Clockwork Mansion because yeah. the novelty of watching the entire world change around you is just that's just always incredible. I think I really like the one where you have to work out who's the target and who's the doppelganger you're in like his quite uh abstract house in its in its grounds but there's two of them and you've got to work out who is who his fake is from like reading clues and stuff like that every level has a hook like that is 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 very very satisfying yeah there's even like the um it's the, the, the basically the evil doctor who you have to make good and like uh or mm. you can and like that that one on the is it like a is it kind of like a sort of island prison type setter like a it's yeah just, well, that's, that's yeah. like the, that's sort of like an asylum right even th- like that as a kind of like concept and location and like what you're up against and the ways in which it can it can it can play out it's just proper immersive sim stuff but with a real cinematic edge to it um yeah yeah, yeah it was good and of course the legendary like jindosh lock the idea of like a level you can basically skip a whole level if you just do a very difficult puzzle instead. It's like, do you want to do this level to get through this door, or do you just want to try and work out this very difficult logic puzzle? Incredible, really. And yeah, all of those all of those locations are just so extraordinarily brought to life. Like, that's the thing about Deus Ex: Mankind Divided's like limitations. Is I don't think I think you only get a real tiny little snapshot of that world, and what the snapshot you get is good. But in Dishonored 2, it feels like you're in these actual places and the scale of them is just out of control. They've just they've done everything to make sure those levels feel as grand and all encompassing as they can do. So mm. that's why it's um that's why it's the it's a ten for me, where I think Mankind Divide is a nine. So, Matthew, we come to the end of the list. We did it. Another top ten down. Very strange episode. Feels like it started down, then got slightly jollier as it went. But well, kind that's because we started off with the sad stuff, and then we got to all the games that we liked. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like the cone of the cone of good podcasting. So a few honorable mentions here. I've kind of like mentioned a bunch of mine already now, but like Firewatch and the Division. Those are the games I was weighing up for the top ten. Uh, also had like XCOM two, which came out this year. Yeah. Um, never quite got my arms around that one in the way I did with Enemy Unknown, so I didn't quite feel confident putting on my list. Matthew, any from you? I liked Pony Island and the arrival of is it Daniel Mullins? Yeah, with his sort of like fourth wall breaking, evil possessed arcade machine game. I actually really liked Unravel, the EA platformer where you played as the little yarn creature. Oh yeah, Yarny. Yarny. The Yanni who has something of the devil about him, I've always <laughs> thought. He looks like a little <laughs> demon. Um, there's something very sinister about his little eyes. But the idea of like using his body and unraveling his body to sort of swing around, I thought was was very cute. I actually, I do a game I played loads on, mainly for the magazine, but it weirdly got its hooks into me. Um, it was Plants vs Zombies: God on Warfare Two? 
Oh, right. I, that was a, a hard pass for me, that one. Maybe it's because it was like a slightly lower stakes online shooter with the kind of cartoonish sort of Pixar-y aesthetic from the Plants and Zombies game. But um, that was, I don't know, maybe that was the online shooter that was more my speed rather than all these other scary games where I just get like nuked by teenagers. Um, <laughs> but I did, play, I did play a fair amount of Battlefield 1, which I was always bad at, but was properly spectacular with those giant like war machines that would come in like the big blimp or the the evil kind of tank train and there was a slight sort of silliness to it you know you know obviously you think going back to world war one it's going to be like the ultra grim kind of everyone dying from fucking mustard gas the whole time um (laughs) and actually it was a bit more like rollicking people riding around on horses having a great time so um (laughs) it's nice that we managed to like reclaim world war one as the fun war yeah, um. <laughs> got some good, yeah, the good content war, you know, as opposed yeah. to like the no content war. Yeah, um, and Forza, yeah. Forza Horizon Three very almost made the list. I just think that they really, really perfected the formula in four. But three was the Australia one, so it had all the amazing kind of coastal uh, highways you could tear along. But then it also had dirt track, kind of in the desert. Many amazing, competent racing games in one, which is kind of the magic of that series. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I played a little bit of this one, but I played a bit more of four. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to discussing that at some point. But yeah, really kind of came to came to life this year. Um, I had a few more, Matthew, for you. Oh yeah. So uh, I had Absu, the underwater narrative oh, yeah. kind of game, which I quite liked. That wasn't really close to getting on the top ten, honestly, but I thought it was a cool little game. Hyperlight Drifter was this year. It was quite a tough sort of action game, but with amazing pixel art. Kind of like became a bit of a runaway success. I, I like that game, but not quite enough to put it on my list. Oxenfree, that came out this year too. So it's sort of like teenage spooky horror adventure uh, game with a, a cool ending hook. Um, now has a sequel, not played the sequel. Um, not sure I need a sequel, but, you know, cool <laughs> for that team that they, um, nice school, they're able to like get on the map because of that. Uh, Mirror's Edge Catalyst, which I really enjoyed. but was Oh yeah, I was t- surprised that didn't make your top 10 actually. Yeah, I really liked it, and it had some truly amazing standouts. But like, I think I just, I think versus the likes of Titanfall Two, it's just too flawed a game to have yeah. a, a place in the same list. So he says, you know, knowing that Final Fantasy Fifteen is a, a deeply flawed game. So yeah, those are kind of like my oh, one other one actually. Like, I did consider and I did play a bunch of to try and like get a grip on it during the pandemic. Watch Dogs Two, um, so really tried to like mix things up with a San Francisco setting. And that setting was quite vivid and cool, and the characters are a bit more likable than the first game. Obviously, that was a deliberate choice. Um, but mechanically, I just don't think I ever quite clicked with the hacking things stuff in Watch Dogs. Yeah. I don't think they ever like made that exciting enough to uh, it, be it the premise like of the whole it, it game. It was going to be like fun GTA again. Yeah, you know, like lots of goofy, wacky stuff. But I, I've, I still found the, I found the central gang very trying. I just, I think Watch Dogs is just a bit of a no from me. As a series, I think like without them reinventing that power set, I feel like the the what you can actually do with the hacking has never captured people's imaginations. Really, it's like yeah. it's like boring immersive sim stuff, basically. Well, that's like, it's just it's just used to do what you can do in every stealth game. It's like hacking a machine so it makes a distracting sound. Is that any more interesting than throwing a penny so it makes a distracting sound? Like, yeah, I, it just like eh, really is that all we've got? It's it's a hacking skin on a game I've played too many times yeah the thing i sort of like i don't know if it ever ends up doing this sort of thing but i always thought the powers were going to be going to be more like you like take the power out in a block to escape the police and stuff like that and all the lights would go out and that sort of thing but like if it was more like mess with the traffic lights or make this car go forward slightly to crash into another car and it just 
yeah, I don't know. I it just didn't quite do it for me. Um, yeah. The man with emoji emoji is that emoji head guy in this one as well. Like he doesn't have a face; he just has emojis instead. Uh, I think he was in this is one. Wrench, something like that. Yeah, they were. A, I agree, they were a bit of a tougher hang, but they were at least like not self serious. I suppose like a- Aiden Pierce was, but you know, hey ho! I think I'm with you there on Watch Dogs, even though I always like people taking a swing at bringing a, yeah. a real life city to life. You know, and they did a good That's... job at the San Francisco. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay, any more from you, Matthew? Are we done? I did like the little VR thing that they did for Res Infinite. I remember playing that actually on on PSVR, and they added yeah. that like crazy this is Zone X, yeah, the, yeah. The, the VR bit, and that is like a like a complete holy shit audiovisual thing. I've done that again on PSVR two, and it's just that's pretty overwhelming. But I don't want to pretend to be a big res head because I think I've established myself as simply too square to fully understand it. <laughs> um, I didn't experience full synesthesia. Well, it's just like it's like five levels res, isn't it? And then you just sort of done. It's a very short yeah. game, really. You could be a res head quite easily. I think it's not that. Um, that yeah, demanding. I just but don't yeah. really get. Yeah. Evergreen I... game, though. You know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Cool. In which case, the podcast is done. We have reached the end of another three-hour epic. Matthew, where can people find you on social media? I'm at Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. The pod- podcast is BackpagePod on Twitter. Like I say, patreon.com slash BackpagePod if you'd like to unlock two additional podcasts a month at the XL tier. Or you can just drop us a quid in the tip jar tier. Any support is always appreciated, of course. The podcast is ad-free, as previously discussed. Next week, we've got a, a mailbag that we're going to, like, uh, I don't want to say fart out, but it's going to be like no, a... We are going to fart it out. <laughs> <laughs> because we're both away at Gamescom, so we need a quicker episode. But I imagine it'll end up being quite quite good fun by the end of it, Matthew. Um, so, yes. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.